Hello. Are we clicky? Mm, no, not really. Don't click. Please don't click my microphone. I would like it if you don't click. All right. All right. No, you're doing it. I was about to do it, but you're doing it this time. <laughs> it's already been done. Books, booze, and B-movies with your favorite tipsy cuties. Uh, yeah, so hopefully with all of my internet on my end, all the rest of my internet off, all my Wi-Fi off. You look so tired. Poor, uh, sick child. I'm not tired. It's just like my, this side so it's it's only on one side and it's this like this nasal pad is just like swollen as fuck and it has and and because it's like all swollen and messed up it has like this just right here under my eyes like headache from Mm. right there so i'm not really tired it's just like i don't want to be like open my eyes really wide because right my head like kind of hurts it takes effort yeah it's fucking weird and it's i've been like this for a fucking week it's been Ugh, horrible i'm sorry yeah and i don't want to go to my doctor because right covid like why the fuck would i just right. do that because sinus infections for the most part go away on their own in 10 days right but okay we have a podcast. Hello. Hello, everyone, and <laughs> welcome uh, to another episode of Real Lit, where a college professor talks hey. about the classics of literature uh, while drunk, and a <laughs> cinephile talks about everyone's favorite shitty movies um, while also drunk. So yes. enjoy Real Lit. You love it. You love to see it. Everyone loves to see it. No yeah. one loves to see it. Not see it. You love to listen to it, obviously, because this is a podcast. See, yeah, you're listening. Part of the the uh, thing. I'm already feeling it. If you can't tell, because yeah. uh, I definitely have drank half of my drink so far, in addition to my shot. Yeah, uh, Sam's already <laughs> Sam's already drunk. We chatted a bit before this, before we started, and Sam, it's already gone to our head. You're welcome, America and the world. Um, (laughs) So we're going to cover one that we're going to cover a classic today that I actually have not touched in many, many years before I decided to do it for the podcast. Um, And I was kind of hesitant to do it because my memory of it was like, uh, uh, it's so like, what I remembered of it, I was like, oh my God, it's so overrated. I, I'll just get it out of the way is kind of what I was thinking when I was picking it. But then like I gained a new appreciation for it because it had been so long since the first time I'd read it. Um, so like rereading it this time, it's still overrated. Like, don't get me wrong. It's definitely overrated. But like there are some nuances and important things in it that I was like kind of happy that I ended up choosing it because um, I get to talk about it in a way that people don't talk about this book um, really at all yet. They've only just, I should say, I shouldn't say never because they have started um, and we'll get into that. But like only recently have they started talking about this book in certain ways that I personally think 
are really important. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the catcher in the rye. <clears throat> Do you know her? Uh, I know of the book a bit, but everything that I know about the book is because of other movies. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's a movie with Jennifer Aniston and Jake Gyllenhaal, mm-hmm. uh, where he equates himself to being the catcher in the rye. Uh, okay. the character of the from the catcher in the rye holden mm-hmm. yeah holden and he keeps referring to himself as holden and describing like the way that he is like he's trying to emulate holden yeah something like that uh but i don't i've never read the book uh so everything oh. i know of everything i know about this it is, is great it's only based <laughs> off of catcher in the rye in pop culture as it's referenced in other art yeah for sure in case you haven't in case you haven't ever heard it as a pop culture reference i i find that quite shocking but hey um you do you because yeah um like i said in my opinion it is somewhat at least overrated in certain respects but i shall say after my reread of it now that i am more of an adult than I was the last time I read it that like it's overrated because people focus on it for the wrong reasons um and it really bugs me like I'm glad that I picked it because my reread of it this time I was like god damn for for so many reasons which you know what I won't even start explaining myself I'll just get into it because I'll be doing that while we talk about it and we'll just cover it then (laughs) so The Catcher in the Rye is a a novel by J.D. Salinger, uh, and this novel was written in 1951, uh, which is strange. I think last week we did, or last episode we did was 19, well, we did 1984, right, which is written in 1949, so Mm -hmm. kind of the same time period, very, very different book than 1984, Uh, so our main character this is a first person narrator. So we are getting Holden's uh, personal talking to us uh, voice. And his name is Holden Caulfield. He is 16 years old. Right in the beginning, you learn that this experience is going to be one that is a little unique, especially for 1951. So I'm going to read a little bit of the beginning of it just so that we can kind of get a feel for this and you can keep this vibe in your head when I tell you all of the events that happened to Holden. Uh, because the events might seem, and unless you read it, it, they might seem kind of mundane. But when you know what Holden, how Holden is telling his story, then the entirety of the story is tainted differently. So this is the beginning of The Catcher in the Rye. If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. In the first place, that stuff bores me. And in the second place, my parents would have about two hemorrhages apiece if I told anything pretty personal about them. They're quite touchy about anything like that, especially my father. They're nice and all, I'm not saying that, but they're also touchy as hell. Besides, I'm not going to tell you my whole goddamn autobiography or anything. 
I'll just tell you about this madman stuff that happened to me around last Christmas, just before I got pretty run down and had to come out here and take it easy. I mean, that's all I told DB about, and he's my brother and all. So that is the beginning of Catcher in the Rye. This is Holden Caulfield as a character. This is his voice. He's 16 years old. Uh, right now, <clears throat> he is just from what we've heard here, he is living in an unspecified place. Later on, you learn that it's, it's likely in California. It's likely some sort of institution, medical, potentially. Uh, and this is uh, after the end of World War II. The exact year is not specified by Holden because Holden is telling the story and he just doesn't feel it necessary to say what year it is for him. Stuff that he tells us about later will help us kind of narrow down the time period. So essentially, when he gets discharged in a month from where he is right now, he intends to go live with his brother, DB, who is his older brother. Uh, and his brother, DB, is an author and a war veteran uh, from World War II. Holden, by the way, right now is kind of angry at DB because DB has, in his opinion, sold out or quote unquote prostituted himself by becoming a Hollywood screenwriter. DB is quite successful. <laughs> he is writing stuff for Hollywood uh, right after World War II. Obviously, Holden really looks up to his brother, but he simultaneously, as you'll learn, has a lot of problems with pop culture and things like that so he is a hipster so, if there ever was one i'm not sure yes and no i'm not sure if you'll keep hipster as a categorization in a while but for sure we can keep hipster for right now so the first thing that we need to understand is that holden caulfield is obviously an unreliable narrator you can tell exactly what his type of personality is from the minute he starts talking. And he is not someone that you can necessarily trust on certain subjects, particularly if there's stuff, if it's stuff that is important to him or close to him. He is very unreliable as a narrator. Uh, and this wasn't by any means the the first ever unreliable narrator, but he kind of gets the hat of like kind of popularizing what an unreliable narrator is and kind of popularizing that eccentric, oh, you can't ever, you, you never know what you're gonna get when it comes to me, kind of like a uh, quote unquote bad boy almost type of character for guys that happens from the 50s onwards. It, it's because of Holden Caulfield. Uh, he has a huge pop culture um, influence from his entire characterization. Holden, as he mentioned, as I read, he tells us that he's not going to tell us his whole life story, but he will tell us about the events of the previous Christmas that got him to where he is right now. So now we're going back in time. This is almost kind of like a We've, we've done To Kill a Mockingbird uh, on this show, and this is almost kind of a like Scout and Jem talking to each other about what happened when they were kids scenario. Like technically speaking, the present of the story is when they're much older or, you know, after the events of what's actually going to take place in the story. So he starts us off. So it's the previous Christmas. He is at Pensy Preparatory Academy. It is a boarding school in Pennsylvania. This is kind of a couple days 
or so before they get out for Christmas break. And he's just learned that he's not going to be allowed back at Pensy after Christmas break because he is failing all of his classes except for English. Oh, damn. Yes. Yeah. He is not completely uninvolved in school. For instance, he's the manager of the fencing team at Pensy. But that day, this particular day that we start, actually, he talks about the fact that they uh, went to a match in New York, but they had to forfeit it because he forgot all of their equipment on the subway on their way there. What an idiot. uh, Yeah. So uh, they had to forfeit the match and they come back home to Pensy. After they get home from this, he goes to his history teacher's house named Mr. Spencer. And he goes because he's going to say goodbye to Mr. Spencer. Mr. Spencer like wrote him a note basically saying, hey, before you leave for Christmas break, come see me. Uh, So he's going to Mr. Spencer. Mr. Spencer is is a very older man um, and he's very well-meaning, but he's also very long-winded. He's kind of that like stereotypical history professor, (laughs) Uh, very old, uh, very nice, but very stuffy and obviously has no idea how to relate to any sort of young person whatsoever. (laughs) Yeah. And so Spencer essentially wanted him to come to talk to him because he wants to offer Holden advice. He wants to help Holden. And Holden understands and kind of appreciates this. And he, he really does seem to grasp that Spencer means well. But ultimately in this conversation, uh, Holden gets embarrassed because uh, Spencer <laughs> reads parts of his history exam to him to kind of like try and embarrass him enough to kind of care basically. And it does embarrass Holden, but not enough. Yeah, um, not in a constructive and- way. No. Uh, And this is where we need to pause and take a note in Holden's character traits to note that what we've learned now here by this point is Holden has attention issues and he's quite self-deprecating. He has a really hard time focusing on things and it's a problem and it's been a problem for him for a while. Uh, and he routinely calls himself a moron and all of that. Um, Undiagnosed ADD along with depression. Oh, girl, uh, just you wait. Um, just <laughs> I mean, it wait. was the 50s. Just you <laughs> wait. We've only just begun. You're going to be singing that from the rooftops um, in like an hour. Uh, so... <laughs> Basically, at one point, I just wanted to read a little clip of this conversation uh, so that you can kind of appreciate what I mean by talking like this. Uh, So he's talking to Mr. Spencer, and Mr. Spencer says, do you feel absolutely no concern for your future, boy? Oh, I feel some concern for my future, all right. Sure, sure I do. I thought about it for a minute, but not too much, I guess. Not too much, I guess. You will, old Spencer said. You will, boy. You will when it's too late. I didn't like hearing him say that. It made me sound dead or something. It was very depressing. I guess I will, I said. I'd like to put some sense in that head of yours, boy. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to help you. He really was, too. You could see that. But it was just that we were too much on opposite sides of the pole. That's all. 
So that is his appreciation of what is going on and his sort of ability to recognize that there's clearly a problem, but he's either unwilling or unable to kind of see the solution to the problem as of yet. So Holden leaves, he goes back to his dorm, has a dorm neighbor. So the, the neighbors that kind of share the like, they have so he, two rooms that share like in, a shower space in between. Yeah, we have dorms like that at, at state that are, the way that it's set up there is like six, it's three rooms that all share like a, like a living room. Yeah. So the, the three, each of the three rooms has like a set of bunk beds and like a desk in it. Or each each kid has like a desk and a bunk bed, and then the three all share a communal living room and shower, like bathroom situation. Yeah. Yeah. They so they don't actually share the bathroom scenario, but it's just like a shower. Like it's just <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, but that's the only thing they share. And then the actual bathroom for the floor uh, is an entirely different room. Where there's just a bunch of like sinks and toilets basically that's weird strange. yeah quite strange but you know that it is what it is so he has a door neighbor named uh robert ackley ackley uh he calls him holden calls him uh ackley we're told by holden is unpopular among the boys at pensy and uh, Ackley comes in when Holden is at his dorm right now, and he kind of disturbs Holden. He's kind of, and he's impolite, but not really. It's more just kind of like, he's just a typical like teenage boy. Like he's got acne, he's got hygiene issues. Uh, he is, has a posturing issue because he doesn't want to seem like he's vulnerable. So he's just kind of not cultured. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But anyway, he comes in and bugs Holden and Holden's like, oh God, Ackley. Uh, but Holden feels sorry for Ackley. And so he he tolerates his presence essentially. Uh, yeah. Even they're friends. They're definitely friends. So later on after this, Holden agrees to write uh, an English paper basically for his roommate. His roommate's name is Ward Stradladder. Ward Stradladder needs Holden's help writing this English essay because he has a date tonight. It's like a Saturday night or something or a Friday night, I don't remember. Holden and Stradladder actually normally hang out really well together, we're told. There's this kind of like moment where they're hanging out like in the bathrooms like he goes to like uh keep talking to Stradladder while Stradladder is like combing his hair and like prepping for his date basically and they're like hanging out and then like Holden is like trying to show off and like starts wrestling with uh Stradladder and like appreciates Stradladder's physique and it's mm. like mm, is that mm. gay because that reads gay um <laughs> Yes. Uh, I mean, like, yes, it there's does. No, <laughs> there's no like obvious like attention in that regard paid in that moment, but it reads gay for sure, for so, sure. From yeah, a 2020 some... standpoint, you would read that and you'd be like, "Is that boy queer?" Is basically some, what you would some ask serious. Yourself. There's serious gay undertones play at play here. He 
is hanging out with Stradletter, like I said, and they're talking. And as they're talking about Stradletter's date, basically, uh, Holden actually gets distressed very suddenly when he learns that Stradletter's date is with a girl named Jane Gallagher. Uh, because Holden knows Jane Gallagher, which he did not expect to know who Stradlatter's date. And not only does he know Jane Gallagher, but it's someone that he actually has had kind of a like summer like crush on back in the day when like he was younger. And so he feels kind of suddenly protective of her, despite not having seen her in a long time. So Stradlatter goes to his date. That night, Holden decides to go out with Ackley and another one of their friends, uh, and then they come back. And after they come back, uh, he writes Strad Ladder's essay. And this is where we learn something really, really important about Holden, that it really bothers me that people don't talk about this kind of more, or at least not in any of the stuff that I've read. They give it any like sort of importance as to like his characterization and like what he's going through right now. We learn Holden had a younger brother named Allie and Allie is dead now because Allie died of leukemia on July 18th, 1946. Uh, and it was his younger brother. He, so we are at least past 1946. It's insinuating now, we can probably time what is happening right now to at the very earliest Christmas 1946, uh, but maybe Christmas 1947 or so, you know, it's around there. We learn this because Holden kind of goes off on a tangent as he's doing something. He writes Stradlatter's essay describing something of Allie's because it's like a descriptive essay. So he goes into talking about what happened to Allie and the night he, that Allie died and they learned that he died, Holden actually had a huge um, massive fit and broke a bunch of stuff in their garage, busted like all the glass that he could touch with his bare hands and his hand is now basically crippled because of this. Like he doesn't have, he has a hand like I do. So essentially like he doesn't have good grip in his hand anymore because of the damage that he did to the He like fucked up his tendons and nerves. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's like the kind of like fit he almost had that night when he learned that his brother died. And so Holden tells us this and then kind of zooms right over it. This is a kid who has very recently in his life, he's 16 years old, and he has dealt with losing a younger sibling that he really loved. So when Stradlatter finally returns home from his date, he sees the essay that Holden wrote for him. And he kind of like, he basically is like, why did you write it about this? I told you to write about, write it about like a place or something, not like a uh, object like I can't use this he doesn't really like appreciate that like what Holden has written about is actually like kind of a deeply personal thing for Holden and granted there's a reason for him to know this but like he doesn't and so he's very insensitive about not liking it Holden is a little upset and he is upset even further when as he starts talking to Stradlatter more about his date uh Stradlatter kind of refuses or kind of avoids 
answering whether or not he had sex with Jane on their date that night, uh, which to Holden confirms that he probably did. And Holden, who is a pacifist, he admitted admits he actually hates fighting and is afraid to fight because he's a coward, but he is so enraged in this moment, he punches Stradladder uh, in the face. And so Stradladder is remarkably more physically adept than Holden is. So even though Holden got a sucker punch in, uh, Stradladder easily wins this fight and pins him down and like tries to calm him down. And Holden, uh, because now he obviously can't physically hurt him, he continues mouthing off at Stradladder uh, and insulting him to the point where Stradladder punches him in the nose. Then that's kind of the end of that. <laughs> Uh, Stradladder leaves him kind of lying on the floor <laughs> with his bloody nose uh, and leaves the room. And so Holden goes first, he goes to Ackley's room. Ackley is asleep because it's the middle of the night at this point. And Ackley is kind of doesn't pay him like a whole lot of attention in this moment, which is what Holden, Holden is obviously looking for. He's looking for somebody to like occupy him because he is clearly not in a good headspace and he doesn't yeah. get that here uh and we learn here by the way which i don't think people talk about enough we learn here that the reason that stradladder maybe having sex with jane bothered him so much is not really necessarily that he cares about jane so much even though he may or he may not but more so because according to Holden, because he hangs out with Stradlatter a lot, if you remember, Stradlatter is like a rapist. <laughs> uh, he like essentially remembers and, and says here that it bothers him because he knows how good Stradlatter is at like bagging a girl basically, quote unquote. But the way he describes it, he describes it as Stradlatter always getting a girl out on a date and then hanging out with her in the back seat and convincing her to have sex where he is putting the moves on her and she's always saying, I'm not making this up, this is in the book. She's always saying, no, don't, no, please. But he gets what he wants. Stradlatter's a rapist. <laughs> let's just call a spade a spade and it's quite clear uh and understandable why yep. holden doesn't sound like that. the 50s exactly um but so they're the greatest generation so i can't i can't say anything about that i guess this oh man this <laughs> this there's just so many things to say that I can't get any of them out because they run into each other at the entrance of my mouth. So like, yeah. I can't get any words out. <laughs> no, no, I have, I, I'm already upset. Like we, yeah. we're what, like uh, maybe a third of the way through this book right now. And I'm already like pissed off at the clear homophobia that exists that is yeah. prevalent the rapist notion of Stradladder uh, and just the idea that it was okay and the culture of from the 50s that it was okay. Right. 
because uh, Stradlatter is, is 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 a stud essentially yeah. he would be and holden says this that he is the kid that everyone looks at and thinks of the as the quintessential happy successful boy that anyone would be very happy to have their daughter end up with for yeah. instance the and all american boy is. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure yeah not to mention the fact that this kid so, clearly has add and there was no diagnosis oh. for it at the time so all of his teachers are just like you're a dumb fuck uh but no it's a real like mental dis like mental problem that i have that is causing me to be uh. bad at school <laughs> <laughs> we're only a third of the way through like this isn't even we haven't even scratched the surface of this the fucking issues in this book we haven't um you're you're screaming now and it's just glorious for me and it's glorious for me not because i enjoy your suffering although sometimes i do but it's glorious for me because i know that i'm personally not alone because i suffered this exact way when i was rereading it uh like when i first read it i was actually kind of younger and i couldn't remember it well enough probably because i didn't pay enough attention when i was reading it because i read it for like some random class i was taking when i was super young and getting my bachelor's and i probably didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it because i didn't want to and i had a shit ton of other things i was doing and i was able yeah. to like pass the class without having to pay too much attention to it so i didn't even really remember it that well uh I just kind of remembered my generalized feelings on it and generally kind of like what the story was. And so when I was rereading this as an adult for this podcast, no, I was literally at the same exact point right now. We're not even a third of the way into the book. And I was exactly like you are right now. I was like, what is going on? <laughs> Why is it like this? Why yeah. is no one talking about this? <sighs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Long story short, Stradladder's a rapist kill me gross um basically so <laughs> he's in ackley's room ackley is like what the fuck off holden it's the middle of the night i'm going back to sleep and holden is now fed up with what he calls the phonies at pensy prep and holden decides in this moment right now he's going to leave pensy early he's going to catch a train to new york uh, he has a bunch of money from his uh, like grandmother that he's been like saving up and his family is wealthy like we were told this by Holden um, early on so like he gets like an allowance or something and his grandmother gives him a bunch of money all the time so he has a bunch of money saved up that he is more than able to kind of use for his purposes here so he goes uh, I'm going to leave Pensy early. I'm going to catch a train in New York. I'm going to stay away from home, though, until Wednesday. Because Wednesday is when actually Christmas break begins. And that's the day he's actually supposed to come home. <laughs> so <laughs> he's like, I'm just going to hang out and do what I want and until Wednesday. And then I'll go home. But I can't stay here a moment longer, basically. Uh, Cry me so a fucking river, Holden. He gets on a train, he gets all his stuff and he gets on a train. And uh, on the train, we have an interesting interaction where um, he meets the mother of 
uh, a wealthy Pensy student that Holden finds obnoxious. She sees the like Pensy decal on his like suitcase basically. And it's like, oh, you go to Pensy prep? My boy goes to Pensy prep. And Holden is like, oh yeah, I know who your son is. He's great. Um, and in his head, Holden is like, this dude is absolutely not great. This dude is like one of the worst dudes at Pensy prep, but he like, <laughs> it, you know, like chats his mom up and is, he makes up a whole bunch of false stories about himself, like that he has like a tumor and he's going home early because he has to get surgery and like it's it's wild, wild. So let's reiterate here for anyone who was confused earlier about just how unreliable of a narrator Holden should be considered, he's a liar. <laughs> like he will sit there and spin a fantastical ass story for no fucking reason that is not anywhere based in reality, uh, just because. And he talks about it, he, he is very self-reflective in his sort of personal musings. And he's well aware that there's no reason when he does this and he can't really identify for himself why he'll start doing it. And he knows that it's wrong and it's unnecessary, but he like can't, almost can't stop himself. But Holden takes the train. Uh, he eventually gets to New York. In New York, after he gets off the train, he takes a taxi. The taxi takes him to the Edmont Hotel we learn as he's at the uh, Edmund Hotel, he gets a room and we learn here via Holden kind of remembering stuff. Jane's story flashes back to, you know, the times when they lived near each other and they, you know, became good friends and they were kind of like a young boyfriend and girlfriend. They, you know, held hands and he kissed her like once and, you know, they, they played checkers together and he taught her how to play golf. And it's this really sad story actually, because like her, we learned that Jane had kind of like a, her mom had a boyfriend slash stepdad at the time. That was a super skeezy, like alcoholic pedophile essentially uh and it's not stated outright because Holden doesn't know but it's heavily implied that Holden believes that the dude probably like molested Jane uh and so like we kind of learn about this relationship that he had with Jane and like why she is was so precious to him basically um that like he had a relationship with her that he has not had with another girl he had and that, and that isn't to say that he doesn't have relationships with girls because he does and we'll learn about a different one but it's a very different type of relationship it was one that was kind of more what we would consider more heartfelt more kind of real uh than like the traditional for him the traditional dating type of relationship that he has with other girls anyway he spends uh, a good portion of this night because remember it's the middle of the night when he left. So now it is past midnight and he is at this hotel and he has a um, room, but he's not gonna go to sleep. He is gonna go to the uh, club in the hotel or their lounge, I guess I should call it. And he dances with three tourists here at this lounge uh, for a good while. He's disappointed in them because whew, misogyny basically uh they're ugly and they're vapid 
And Holden is just uh, so put out by having to deal with these girls who can't talk about cultured things. Ugh. <sighs> Hangs out with them for a while, dances with them for a while. He goes to a different nightclub after this because the tourists leave. And he kind of has a similar experience. He doesn't even dance with anyone here. It's really crowded. And he, you know, he's just there to not sleep, basically, and to not be alone. And he's trying to get booze. He'll intermittently get carded, essentially, but sometimes he won't. And he'll just get alcohol when he orders it. And like, nobody questions it. Oh, oh, and by the way, smoking is a thing right now, like hardcore. And it's all the rage because not a single person is telling anybody that like, yeah, if you smoke a whole lot, you're going to damage your lungs and you will probably get lung cancer and die. So it's quite a common thing for Holden, for kids Holden's age to be like smokers. And Holden is like a smoker. He is like several packs a day, a smoker. Yeah. Well, it's like- Yeah, it's like the, for those of you not in America, um, (laughs) you've likely seen some older American films because that's just how production was for a while. And a lot of stuff, a lot of films that take place in the 50s show this off as just, we, if you watched it now, you'd be like, damn, why are all those children smoking? But this really was the culture. It really was the culture post World War II here in America. Like just everyone was lighting up. Um, The one, the movie that comes to mind, the book slash movie that comes to mind when I think of just teens smoking is well, two of them. There's Grease because all of the dudes in Grease smoke, and Mm -hmm. The Outsiders which all of the dudes in the outsider smoke, but they're all in high school. And the youngest one is like 13. And he's just like lighting up all the time. All the time. That was the culture. And I'm glad- And and it's not even that like they light up. It's yeah. And it's, oh yeah, for sure. But it's not even that they light up and like they do what we would consider a normal teen behavior where they're lighting up and adults don't approve because the adults clearly don't approve of someone younger than necessary drinking alcohol because he gets carded several times in this book. It's not even like that. Adults are very comfortable seeing kids smoke. Like it is not an issue at all if they see him smoking because it's perfectly fine for teenagers to be smoking (laughs) in this culture. Uh, Fucking weird. And like, and like, adults will offer him cigarettes and have cigarettes with him in this story and it's quite strange if you are somebody who lives in the now where that would absolutely not ever be a thing well i mean (laughs) okay like so in the 80s here in america we had the war on drugs brought to you by mrs barbara bush she (laughs) and the war on drugs idea really pushed this fantasy or i guess ideology that all drugs including now cigarettes are terrible for everyone but what we're really going to focus on is the kids because clearly drugs are bad for everyone but cigarettes are horrible for children in the 80s it wasn't like okay in the 70s let me say 
in the seventies, it wasn't uncommon for people to smoke at school on school grounds. I know for a fact at my mm -hmm. high school, because I'm part of some like alumni of my high school thing, people will post about the glory days in the seventies when they would just go to this specific corner called smokers corner. And everyone was just yeah. like smoking Light like at up. lunch at lunchtime and breaks. Like they would just go stand over there and that's where they would smoke. And nobody right. gave a fuck. And when I was in high school, hardly anyone smoked cigarettes. There was mm -hmm. like a handful of if kids. If you did, if you did, you hit it basically. Yeah, because you hit it. It was not a cool thing to do. No, it was disgusting. And there was like mm -hmm. a handful of kids who didn't give a fuck about hiding it. But you know, you couldn't do it on campus because no, campuses are now not. You campuses in a shit ton of trouble. The idea you know, in this book that just some 16 year old that's fucking lighting up in front of all these adults and just smoking. And adults are like, is, uh, hey, they don't I give a fuck off you. Yeah. Like it's insane. No, that's absurd. But anyway, so this is what's happening in this uh, story. Holden has a night out, goes to one lounge, goes to a different lounge. He's trying to be around people and trying to distract himself because he doesn't want to sleep and he doesn't want to be alone. Um, but he doesn't have a good time and he finally goes back to the hotel and is finally like oh, I guess I should go up and should maybe try to sleep and he gets into the elevator and in the elevator uh, the the elevator dude is like hey you want to like have sex with a prostitute tonight and what the fuck the kid is like what and he's like yeah I can hook you up um, with a prostitute it'll be five bucks for just like one uh round with her or 15 for the whole night and holden on a whim is just like uh sure <laughs> basically the elevator and guy is a pimp yes what a side like hustle what yeah. a side hustle yeah it's it's <laughs> hilarious and it happens pretty much exactly like that you are not expecting it and he's in the elevator and the guy just turns to him and is like hey so like you want a piece of tail tonight <laughs> and you're like what <laughs> wait what the what fuck happened? what the and fuck so, so holden is like kind of preoccupied and awkward and is just like sure question mark and so he goes to his room and I mean like after he gets out of the elevator the guy tells him as he's leaving all right like she'll be up in like 10 minutes um so get ready and Holden's like okay and like goes to his room and is like uh and he is like sitting around trying to like prep himself for it uh and this is where we learn that despite how much Holden has been talking about sex and even posturing about sex he is a virgin because no matter what he has said before this, he's a liar. Like I've already I mean, told you about Holden. So he is actually a virgin. Probably he's never gay. Had sex. Also probably <laughs> gay. At the very least, bisexual. At the very for least. Sure. He is yeah. questioning his sexuality for sure. He answers the door when 10 minutes are up, uh, and the prostitute is here. Her name has her name is Sunny he was already questioning why the hell he had said yes to this before. And especially now that he is here, that she is here, excuse me, he is very, very questioning of it. And he, you know, like notices that she's very young. She's probably around his age. And oh, it just that's really heartbreaking. kind of, 
Yeah, and it really kind of bugs him out even more. So he is like, you know what? Um, can I, I'll still pay you because obviously this is my bad and you deserve to be paid. But like, can we just not have sex? Like, I'll just, can we just talk for like a little bit and then like you can go and have your money? And she, of course, is very like suspicious of this. She doesn't understand what his game is. She She's basically very concerned, you can tell, with the idea of potentially him complaining later that he didn't get what he wanted out of her. So she is kind of pushy about it and like tries to almost seduce him to like get him to relax so that they can just have sex so she can go. He is like, no, no, like I, I, re I really don't want to. <laughs> I really don't. And so she kind of is annoyed about this. Uh, and so she demands 10 bucks. And if you recall, the fee for one throw or one round was five bucks. And so Holden is like, yeah, no, your dude Maurice only said five, here's five. And she's like, no, a, you know, a round is 10. And he's like, that's not what Maurice said. So I'm not gonna pay you more. And this seems like he's being kind of like stingy for no reason. When I say this, it seems like, what, what, are, you, what are you trying to do? <laughs> he maintains that he's paid her the right amount for what Maurice said. And he does, if you go and like reread it in the book, Maurice did say that it was five at the beginning, but now she's saying it's 10. To us, that sounds like not a big deal because of what the value of the dollar is today. In the late 1940s, five bucks and $10 would have been the difference uh, equivalently of about, I'm going to pay you either $67 or roughly $133 uh, for just talking to you. <laughs> so it, it's a, it makes a little more sense <laughs> when you remember what the value of the dollar is back then that he's kind of like, yeah, no, I'm not going to pay you an extra five bucks because yeah. it's not just $5 in our day and age. So she leaves because he won't give her more money, but she returns uh, very quickly with Maurice, the pimp elevator dude. Uh, and they demand their extra five bucks uh, and Holden, you know, is firm and maintains that he's not going to do it. He is, you know, insults Maurice about it. Sonny uh, takes the money just from Holden's wallet while Maurice kind of corners Holden. Uh, and she, you know, like holds it up like, look, I'm not taking any more of your money. I'm only taking the $5 that you owe me and not anymore. That's all I want. Maurice, because Maurice obviously enjoys fighting, even though they have their money now, he uh, punches Holden like in the stomach and then they leave. Uh, and so afterward, we have this very, very strange um, <laughs> sequence where Holden imagines he has this elaborate fantasy where instead of being punched in the stomach, uh, Maurice shot him. And so he's like, he's like stumbling around but his guts are like falling out if he doesn't hold his hand to his stomach and then he goes and gets an, an automatic pistol and then like presses the elevator button and then like shoots Maurice and murders Maurice in revenge and like it's this very elaborate fantasy 
violent, elaborate fantasy. And you're like, is Holden okay? And the answer clearly at this point by now should be obvious. Holden is very obviously not okay. Um, because Holden, let's let's check in right now with some basic human functions. This has all been in the span of one solid night. He hasn't slept this entire night and he's barely eaten. <laughs> he has been drinking a lot and smoking and not sleeping and he's probably dehydrated as fuck is not okay yeah because he clearly has a lot of mental health issues so for sure finally finally after this he's like i guess i should try and sleep but he can't sleep for very long he wakes up at 10 which is way too early because by the time he falls asleep it is light outside already he wakes up at like 10 a.m. At first, he thinks about calling Jane. He's been thinking about calling Jane ever since he left Pensy. He never ends up doing it. But every time he goes to a phone to do something, his first instinct is to call Jane. Uh, he wants to, but he never does. So he thinks about calling Jane. He doesn't. He ends up calling um, a girl named Sally Hayes. Sally Hayes is a familiar date to him. In fact, you learn that Sally is kind of like, we would consider them boyfriend and girlfriend. Like going steady, they're not, I guess, super exclusive, but they are very clearly together. Does that make, if that makes sense? Yeah. And so he like calls her up and is like, hey, I'm in town early. Let's kind of like meet this afternoon. I'll take you to a play. Um, we can hang out. And she is just beside herself happy about this um, and is like, hell yeah. He is like, all right, cool. So he leaves his room. He goes out and he finally eats a meal. Now uh, <laughs> uh, he eats bacon, eggs, and toasts. Uh, he actually eats his breakfast with two nuns that come in to the like cafe that he's in. And it's a really cute sequence where he kind of like comes up to them just randomly and just sits down with them and starts talking to them. It's very cute. And it's almost kind of endearing. Like it kind of shows you for all of Holden's like very obviously annoying qualities. He is pretty clearly a good dude. Um, yeah. <laughs> after he has breakfast with the nuns, he goes out and he shops. Uh, he's looking for a special record. He's buying it for his sister. He has a 10-year-old sister named Phoebe. He like, you know, tells the reader all about Phoebe and how she's great. Uh, and he wants to buy this record for her because it's a song that she loves. Or no, it's a song that he heard that he knew that she would love and he had always wanted to get it for her. So now he goes out to buy it for her. He gets it. Um, he's walking around and uh, he hears this small boy singing this song it kind of like lifts his mood. And it is the song from which technically the name of the book derives, however, not explicitly. And that'll make sense just a little later. But if you want, uh, I'm pretty sure no one will sue us for this. Um, we can listen to a little bit of it, uh, the song that this kid is singing. There it is. Yep, that's exactly it. 
the rye, fair buddy, coming through the rye. She'd wriggle her petticoaty, coming through the rye. Jenny's a wheat, fair buddy. Jenny's seldom the rye. She'd wriggle her petticoaty, coming through the rye. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, so he hears this song. It's it's based off of a Robert Burns poem. And he hears this kid singing it and it like lifts his spirits. And if you hear coming through the rye in that, the book is obviously called The Catcher in the Rye. So we'll talk about how that happens later. But just so you know, this is kind of the origin of that. It'll make more sense later. Uh, All right. Yeah, yeah. He saw that. And then basically nothing else like super important happens uh, until uh, his date happens. So, you know, he meets Sally. They go to their play. She enjoys the heck out of it. He hates it because he like hates everything pop culture. And after their play, even though (laughs) even (laughs) even though uh, they didn't plan on doing anything after the play, Holden is like, you know what? I don't want to leave you yet. Like, let's go ice skating at like Rockefeller Center. Sally is in love with this idea. And, you know, is like, oh my God, yes. Like, I'm so happy. Uh, And Holden talks, by the way, this whole time when he's with Sally, you know, when he first calls her up, he talks about how Sally is what he refers to as the quote unquote, queen of all phonies. So like, he doesn't have a super high opinion of Sally, like as her her own person but when he finally does see her and he's with her he he acknowledges it even in his own narrative that it doesn't make sense because he knows he doesn't like her but he also simultaneously is like oh my god I'm in love with her and I'm like welcome to being 16 Holden Caulfield (laughs) yep hormones yeah yeah uh so can't control it they ice skate for a little bit and they have fun. Uh, and then they're sitting in the cafe next to the ice uh, rink. And suddenly Holden is very gripped by this, this mood. And he begins ranting at her against society and how society is so fucked. Sally is kind of like, why are you fucking talking like this? Like, what is wrong with you? And he very impulsively basically asks Sally to like run away and elope with him. Uh, and is like run away with me we'll go tonight right now we'll live in the wilderness somewhere uh and we'll like build our own cabin and we'll live off the land and I'll you know like I'll support you forever she's quite shocked obviously at this and is like we can't do that like that's not how things work (laughs) Holden and it very seriously depresses him and angers him so the conversation devolves very quickly and he calls her a pain in his ass which is a huge insult to her uh remember where we are it's the late 1940s uh he calls her a pain in the ass literally out loud to her and it is very insulting uh it doesn't matter how many times he apologizes to her uh she won't listen to him she refuses to forgive him uh and so he just leaves her there because she doesn't want to be taken home by him even and so he leaves finally right now he eats again it's night now again by the way though so he hasn't eaten since breakfast 
And what he eats right now is he only eats a Swiss cheese sandwich and like a glass of malted milk from like what the equivalent would be today from like a 7-Eleven. And he decides he wants to hang out with one of his old classmates from one of the uh, schools that he's flunked out of in his uh, life. You know who I'm going to call up? I'm going to call up old Carl, uh, who was one of my friends at this thing. And hey, let's meet for drinks at this bar. Carl comes and like to like meet him for a drink. Carl is a little older than Holden, and it's very obvious that Carl kind of views Holden in that regard, like you're kind of a child to me. But Holden remembers Carl in a very different light. And again, let's signal to the reader that something needs to be addressed here that he knows or highly suspects that Carl is what they call a flit which is a late 1940s slang term for being gay. He tells us when he's remembering his experiences with Carl in their school, that when they were friends, he considered himself that he was probably going to become gay and was like waiting for it to happen. Help this kid. Can somebody talk to this kid is basically the, <laughs> the moral right? of the story. Um, Carl comes to like see him and Holden is very obviously excited to see Carl again. And he is very obviously obsessed with Carl being a gay man because he cannot stop himself from only asking questions about Carl's sex life and about gay men that he's met and who's a gay man and can Carl tell that that dude's a gay man or not a gay man and Carl is just basically like oh my god Holden you are so embarrassing and a child basically and eventually Carl is like I can't say I gotta go and Holden's like no please I'm very lonely please don't leave me he says that I mean essentially he says this out loud almost verbatim and Carl is like, I literally can't say, but hey, by the way, Holden, you need to go like see a psychiatrist. <laughs> I'm not joking. This is textual in this book. Carl is like, why don't you go and see a psychiatrist? I told you this the last time we saw each other when we parted ways at school. And I am doubling down on that right now. You should definitely go see a psychiatrist yeah and uh Holden is like huh I guess I'll think about it and then Carl leaves uh and so Holden is by himself which is not what he wanted so he gets drunk he gets quite drunk he's already drunk because he's been drinking while he was with Carl and so now he just gets even even more drunk uh he gets so drunk that at one point he goes to the bathroom and like fills the wash basin and dunks his entire head in it and then like sits on the ground over the like grates of the radiator and is like his 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 dripping wet because his entire head was wet flirts with the random like people that walk in and out of the bathroom he gets up and goes to the phone booth he again 
considers calling Jane, but he doesn't. And instead he calls Sally uh, and it's the middle of the night. Let me remind us all again, Sally is asleep uh, and he is drunk as fuck and slurring his words, but he forces Sally's poor grandmother to wake Sally up to put her on the phone because he needs to tell her how much he loves her and that he, you know, he's going to be there for her for Christmas for one of the things that they talked about. It, it's, it's a touching moment where he's clearly trying to make amends for things. Uh, and it's not really clear whether or not Sally uh, is receptive to this or is just being kind of cold and trying to get him off the phone. Uh, but it's not a very long conversation. And uh, after he is exhausted obviously he should be asleep uh but he is almost out of money at this point uh it's only been like 24 hours since he a little more than 24 hours since he entered new york but he has blown almost all of his fucking money because he's been going to clubs and buying drinks and buying cigarettes and buying all of this shit and taking you know sally to the theater and he's almost out of fucking money he is like, I guess I'm just gonna go walk through Central Park. <laughs> so he like walks through Central Park, drunk off his ass, soaking wet, and it's the winter time in New York. So he is freezing his ass off. He accidentally breaks Phoebe's record. And this really, really depresses him. Uh, and he decides in this moment, you know what? I want to see my sister. I still don't want my parents to know that I'm home. So I'm going to have to sneak in, but I'm going to go and see my sister. So he goes home. He sneaks into his own house. He wakes up his sister and he learns very quickly after waking her up that his parents are not even home yet. Thank God. It's like just the maid and the maid is like asleep basically. Uh, and it is very obvious very quickly that Phoebe and his relationship is, is different than any relationship we have seen so far with Holden in the story. Um, it is instantly obvious that she is, I mean, she's young, she's only 10, but she's quite mature for her age. They know each other. Holden feels very clearly that Phoebe knows who he is and that he knows who she is and that he doesn't have to lie to her and he never does. He can be himself and he can tell her the truth no matter what it is and he feels like she will listen to him because they have a very honest conversation about all of the things that he's been doing and thinking. Phoebe is very happy to see him uh, you can tell, obviously, that she idolizes him as a big brother, uh, but she quickly realizes that he's here, obviously, and sneaking around because he probably got expelled, uh, and so she is very upset at him for this because she knows that their parent, you know, their parents are going to kill him for it, and she's worried about him. She is a 10-year-old, and she is chastising him, basically, for his, like, aimlessness and his, like, lack of you know, emotional involvement in anything. And she, you know, kind of challenges him <clears throat> going like, well, you don't care about anything. And he's like, that's not true, I do. And she's like, name one thing that you care about. He thinks in this moment, and this is where we learn something else, vitally important to Holden Caulfield's character, that 
bugs the shit out of me yet again that no one talks about this enough. He thinks in this moment about the time when he was at a school where he had a friend who killed himself. The friend jumped out of a fucking window and died and killed himself. And he was wearing a sweater that Holden loaned him when he died. Jesus Christ. Someone fucking help this kid. What the fuck, basically. Yeah. And he thinks in that moment, but he doesn't say anything about this out loud because he obviously understands that that's not something that Phoebe needs to talk about. He starts to talk about to her about what he really wants to do. And he goes, I don't really know if something like this exists in life, but what I really want to do is I want to be this figure and he describes the Robert Burns poem coming through the rye. And this is from like 1782. By rye, we obviously mean like rye fields. So fields of rye plants, you know what I'm saying? And what he thinks the poem is, is if a body catch a body coming through the rye. And Phoebe is very quick to to correct him and says, no, it's if a body meet a body coming through the rye, not catch a body. But Holden is like, oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was catch. So it's not even, he doesn't even get the poem right. <laughs> but for him, when he thinks about if a body catch a body coming through the rye, he thinks of him being very happy as being this, this figure who stands outside of the rye or right in the, in the, at the border of the rye next to a cliff. And all of the kids in the world are playing in the rye fields. And what his sole job is in life is to stand there and make sure that any of the kids that start running his way and trying to run out of the rye don't run past him and fall off the cliff. He catches them and turns them back around so they can continue playing in the rye fields. And so that die. wouldn't really be catcher in the rye as much as it would be catcher of the rye. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Uh, but it's the catcher in the rye, basically, is what he coins it as. Um, you know, Phoebe and him continue to hang out. He realizes that he's not going to be able to stay at a hotel tonight, not the least of which because he doesn't have any fucking money anymore. So he's like, I got to think of a plan B. I'm definitely not going to stay here because I'm still not ready to face my family. So he calls while he's here, a former English teacher that he very much admires. This English teacher's name is Mr. Antolini. He calls him and asks if he can stay with him uh, until Wednesday. And the teacher is like, absolutely, you know, come right, you know, whenever you get here, work here, you can stay as long as you need to. And so he hangs up and is, you know, that's his plan now, but he wants to hang out with Phoebe as long as he can. So he hangs with her, they hang out and they dance and like, you know, do a bunch of stuff. His parents get home at like, you know, three or four something in the morning. And when this happens, he hides in Phoebe's closet. The, the parents like come in to like check on her and they're like, why are you up? And she's like, oh, I couldn't sleep. And she like lies very easily. It is very obvious the family resemblance with how easy uh, lying comes to Phoebe. Uh, 
And so once she like sends her parents on their merry way, uh, she doesn't dare turn the lights back on and Holden is like, all right, I gotta put my shoes back on and I gotta fucking go. And Phoebe is like, no, why don't you stay? Even You can at least sleep here and then you can leave later in the morning. And he's like, no, 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 I gotta go. So uh, she goes and gets all of the Christmas money that she's been saving up to buy everyone's Christmas presents with. And she gives it to him. It's nearly a hundred dollars our money today she gives him almost a hundred dollars basically and it's like well here you go you said that you were out of money um this should help and he tries to reject it but she insists and he just starts kind of sobbing they like sit there and she like holds him uh as they like cry and then he finally leaves uh and it's very very depressing he goes to Mr. Antolini's house. Mr. Antolini, you know, welcomes him in and uh, expresses, you know, they sit and they talk kind of about what Holden has been up to. And Mr. Antolini has pretty much the same, you know, concerns that essentially Mr. Spencer did way back in the beginning of the, of the story. You know what I'm saying? That, you know, Holden, you're going to be, you're, you're heading toward a what what it what the, he refers to as a quote unquote terrible fall. Some this is not good. The trajectory is not a good one, and so they kind of try to have a good conversation, productive conversation. But Holden is too tired, basically, because again, remember he's been barely sleeping and barely eating. He puts Holden to sleep on the couch. Holden knocks out, but he wakes up. Like not much time has passed, it's still dark. Uh, and he wakes up very quickly after he falls asleep because Mr. Antolini is sort of petting him on the head. Instantly, this attention, this physical attention that Mr. Antolini is paying to this kid while he's asleep, Holden goes, holy fuck, I'm being sexually assaulted wakes up, jerks away, and is like, uh, I'm sorry, I gotta go. And at first, Mr. Antolini is like, what the fuck are you talking about? You have to go like, no, Holden, you can stay. Just stay the night. You can go do whatever it is you need to do. But Holden, you know, very quickly makes an excuse and sees himself out. And he says in this moment that he has had these types of pervert experiences too many times in his life and he couldn't stay there anymore let's let's just let's pause and let's think about all of the things we have learned about Holden Caulfield at this point in the story it's almost done at this point Holden Caulfield clearly has undiagnosed mental health issues probably ADHD probably depression if not more almost guaranteed bipolar uh, almost guaranteed probably you know what I'm saying? Yeah. He also is on a very big lack of sleep and a very big lack of nutrients and has a lot of alcohol and nicotine in his system. Mm-hmm. He also ha- is dealing with depression from having a friend commit suicide and having one of his brothers die of cancer. Yeah. And now you learn... He was also molested as a child. 
he was molested by who knows how many adults and he's also been friends with a rapist and has had friends who have been molested by adults too this kid needs fucking help yeah (laughs) like this is not a fucking okay situation there's no way this doesn't end badly the 50s were fucked up he leaves and he spends the rest of the night in like one of the lobbies of Grand Central Station. He tries to sleep on the benches, but he can't because he's too wired. So he sits around and like reads the random ass magazines and just stays awake sitting around in Grand Central Station all night. Uh, And in the morning, he spends most of the morning wandering around Fifth Avenue. We are at a very scary point. So this is the last part I'm going to read of the story, where Holden is at right now. I kept walking and walking up Fifth Avenue without any tie on or anything. Then all of a sudden, something very spooky started happening. Every time I came to the end of a block and stepped off the goddamn curb, I had this feeling that I'd never get to the other side of the street. I thought I'd just go down, 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 and nobody'd ever see me again. Boy, did it scare me. You can't imagine. I started sweating like a bastard, my whole shirt and underwear and everything. And I started doing something else. Every time I'd get to the end of a block, I'd make believe I was talking to my brother, Ali. I'd say to him, Ali, don't let me disappear. Ali, don't let me disappear. Ali, don't let me disappear. Please, Ali. And then when I'd reach the other side of the street, Without disappearing, I'd thank him. And then it would start all over again as soon as I got to the next corner. But I kept going and all. I was sort of afraid to stop, I think. I don't remember to tell you the truth. So we now have full-blown hallucinations. (laughs) Yeah. And um, potentially schizophrenic behavior. Yeah, that's what happens when you don't eat and you don't fucking sleep, especially- When you're 16 and your brain isn't even fully developed, like get some fucking sleep. And let's talk about the fact that he is at the prime age and is the prime adolescent specimen for when many of these very serious mental health conditions often start their onset. Mm -hmm. 16 years old. That is usually when these types of issues start and they start hard. It is not a gradual thing. It can be an overnight thing. And it is very obviously clearly happening to Holden Caulfield here. I don't care what J.D. Salinger thought when he was writing it because J.D. Salinger thought all tea all shade, he was writing it in 1951. So he was in the midst of this entire culture. He didn't know a goddamn thing about mental health anymore than Holden Caulfield would have known. Yeah. Us today reading this cannot ignore that fact. This kid is mentally in trouble and needs fucking help. Holden, after this, he calms down and he impulsively decides after he has been sitting on a bench for a while that he's not even going to go back home now. He's just going to head out west. 
He's going to live a reclusive lifestyle in a, in a cabin, like he had mentioned when he, when he proposed to elope with Sally, but he's just going to do it himself now. And he's going to be a deaf mute, his words. Walden. Yeah, basically. And so he's like, well, if I'm going to do this, the only person that I care about saying goodbye to is Phoebe. So he goes to Phoebe's school. And he goes early. It's not lunchtime yet. And so he tells them, he gets in because he's obviously Phoebe's brother. And he leaves a note for her, essentially telling her, hey, I know I said that I would be back, uh, but I can't do it. So uh, I'm going to be leaving. uh, So meet me at lunch at the museum so that we can see each other one last time and I can give you your money back. I haven't spent a whole lot of it, basically. That's like all the note says. <laughs> and uh, then he leaves the school again and goes and waits at the museum for her. She's late. Uh, and he's like, I know her lunch hour starts at this specific time. Why is she late? Did she even get my letter? She finally does show up. The reason she's late is because when she got that letter, uh, she responded in a certain way. She shows up with a suitcase. Because when she got that letter, she went home and packed all of her shit and said, I'm going with you. What a good and sister. What a good sister. But let's talk about this. This Her older brother's 16. Phoebe is 10. Oh, yeah. How this is fucked up is this situation. I mean, this How is hard. This is older, older sibling idolization. That hap- this happens in a lot of movies and film and books like the older Everything. sibling's gonna go off and do something and the little the little sibling is like oh well let me pack my things and come with you you know here's I my backpack with right now here's my backpack with a juice box and a yo-yo like mm-hmm. <laughs> let's go yeah that literally the the biggest thing about her is she was like well shit if i'm gonna go with him i'm gonna need clothes so she went home first and packed a bag and got like a bunch of the shit that she would need and comes to meet him and is like all right i'm ready to go and holden is a good older brother because when she says this he's terrified and he's like no no this was not what the note was about this was not supposed to happen I know that this is not good for Phoebe. You do not need to be coming. You need to stay here. I'm the fucked up one, Phoebe. Like you do you do not have a fucked up childhood. You should be okay. You need to stay here. I'm the one that has to remove myself. He refuses to let her come with him. And this obviously upsets Phoebe because she's 10. She doesn't understand. And so he, you know, starts trying to cheer her up but she runs away from him. She runs across the street. So finally he yells across to her, okay, well, hey, I'm gonna walk to the zoo. You can do what you want. And like starts walking and he is paying attention and she obviously follows him, but she's still across the street. And eventually they finally get onto the same side of the street, but she's still angry and she still avoids him and won't look at him. And they go into the zoo and finally, Finally, when they're in the zoo and it's been a while, they reach a carousel in the zoo. And this is Phoebe's favorite ride. This is why Holden walked directly toward it because he knew that she wouldn't be able to resist and she doesn't have money on her because he has her money. (laughs) So, you know, Phoebe reconciles with him 
and seems to forgive him very easily as 10 year olds can. And Holden buys her a ticket to get on the carousel and she wants him to come with her on the carousel, but he's like, no, 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 but I won't leave. I'm going to sit right here. I'm just going to watch you. I'll be right here on this bench. And she watches him to make sure he doesn't leave, but she gets on the carousel and she does it a few times. You know, she does it once, comes back, talks to him for a minute, asks for another ticket and goes and gets back on it again. Now that she knows Holden's not going to leave. And, you know, he's watching her uh, and he, he feels this moment of pure what he describes as pure joy but he's sobbing and it starts raining he's on a bench watching his sister on the carousel sobbing because he is so happy about the situation and this moment that he is living in and that is technically the end of the book that there's an epilogue right after this the epilogue picks up with Holden, this is the epilogue, I should say. It's not really an epilogue, it's technically the last chapter, but it's not like a full chapter. It's barely a page. That's all I'm gonna tell about. I could probably tell you what I did after I went home and how I got sick and all, and what school I'm supposed to go to next fall after I get out of here, but I don't feel like it. I really don't. That stuff doesn't interest me too much right now. A lot of people, especially this one psychoanalyst guy they have here, keeps asking me if I'm going to apply myself when I go back to school next September. It's such a stupid question, in my opinion. I mean, how do you know what you're going to do till you do it? The answer is you don't. I think I am, but how do I know? I swear, it's a stupid question. And there's a little more, but it's kind of more specific. Uh, and essentially what that little more mentions is that he's uh you know obviously attending another school uh when september rolls around but he doesn't want to talk anymore because it's kind of making him miss his former classmates all of this talk is making him miss people and that is the last of the story insane so <laughs> uh so was he in a hospital you can surmise that he's probably in some sort of like inpatient psychiatric facility that's what I would guess because they because have a psychoanalyst I, there. I I assumed he was just at a regular hospital because they say that he was sick and he, you know, hadn't eaten, had what wasn't eating, was drinking a bunch, was out in the fucking rain in the middle of winter yeah. in New York. Like And to be fair, there's a point where he actually almost insinuates that part of the reason why he is in the institution that he is in in the present is because he got tuberculosis hella deadly uh yeah. so uh not a good uh prognosis for him so yeah you could be right it could be that he's in an actual hospital uh and that he's talking about his future and kind of relying on that because he probably actually doesn't have one because if he has tuberculosis he's probably gonna die yeah uh yeah so it is kind of depressing as fuck kind of mm, euphemistically I expected it to be a lot more depressing. Oh, honestly. Really? Okay, so we got to the the part at the museum and yeah. his and he's like his sister's hella mad at him and staying on the other side of the street. And then you were describing them walking towards the zoo and I expected Oh, you were worried. One or two thing one of two things to happen. 
the sister was going to forgive him and make her way across the street and get hit by a car. God, yeah. Or he was going to try and apologize to her and forget to say his little prayer to his brother and step off the side of the street and get hit by a car. The fact that that didn't happen is actually kind of dumb. Like that's how it- <laughs> More poetic, that's, absolutely. That's, that's sure. how it should have happened. Like if this was yeah. a movie, that's definitely- right. That's how that exa- That's exactly what would have happened. Yeah, for That's sure. exactly what would have happened. And all of the the fact that it's being narrated would have been narrated like- by an angel or whatever because or if he got hit you know he's narrating it because he's like in some sort of facility and he's crippled for life and can't yeah yeah yeah. walk anymore or something yeah just the build-up of him walking down fifth avenue and you know the reference to his dead younger brother and trying to save him constantly praying to his brother and having his brother quote unquote save him every time he steps off the curb there was it seemed weird and out of place for him to make that such a big part of it while he's off on his own walking down fifth and then not bring it into the part where he was at the carousel so for sure no I agree I think I can answer this in the form of what I said earlier when I was talking about what J.D. Salinger thinks he was writing versus what he was actually writing he wasn't thinking about this narrative clearly he wasn't in the same way that readers of our day and age think about when we read this shit i read this you would read it or you hear about it anyone else listening to this i would be very surprised if you listen to it and you don't think the same things we do i would be very surprised i'm not saying that you would be wrong i'm just saying it would surprise me if you don't read it and you think to yourself this is a story about mental illness hitting teenagers and how fucking important it is to be present in teenagers lives and listen to them and be you know and be present and be fucking aware of that kind of shit because this is obviously a story of a kid who's having a fucking mental breakdown oh absolutely this novel was written in the exact same era that he is writing about. So J.D. Salinger probably was not cognizant of the types of stuff that we pick up on. Uh, He very, very clearly, because we have, you know, extensive documentation of his thoughts on Catcher in the Rye, he thought that he was writing a story essentially about the sort of disillusionment of adulthood. And that, you know, society is so blasé and fake and phony and that everyone needs uh, to be more like children and be innocent because, you know, childhood is pure and children don't have all of the hangups that adults have. And, you know, absolutely, I'll give him that. There's definitely that theme in this book and you can talk about it but years and decades removed from when he wrote this book, it becomes much more apparent that J.D. Salinger had no idea that he was writing about a a young man having a mental breakdown and how important mental health is and how 
if this was a story that happened in this day and age, it would absolutely be about mental health. It would absolutely be about the importance of checking in with teenagers, not, you know, dismissing them, not dismissing their feelings and their emotions, paying attention to the traumas that they experience, whether they are large or small, because he, he experiences small tragedies, you know, his issues with girls and his issues with Sally or his issues with, you know, uh, his peers or, you know, any of that stuff. And that will take up pages and pages and pages, but he will then gloss over, oh yeah, by the way, I had a little brother who died of leukemia. Oh yeah, by the way, I had a friend once that committed suicide. The unawareness, essentially, (laughs) the like cognitive dissonance of seeing how those, those particular events can be so important and so impactful to someone, even if you don't know it's impacting you, is evident to me, is evident yeah. to me in obviously the way that Holden doesn't realize how important they are and doesn't realize that all of that is the reason. It is absolutely significant parts of the reason why he's having a difficult ass fucking time being a quote unquote normal teenager because he's not because he has experienced some really awful shit he's experienced being sexually assaulted having friends that have been sexually assaulted having friends that are sexual assaulters having a friend that has committed suicide having a you know a sibling die tragically die die of cancer of something that is out of your control not even like an accident or you know like if he got hit by a drunk driver or something you can blame someone in that scenario no it's a disease all of those things we know now in this day and age affect you absolutely affect you and they will affect you no matter what your feelings on the matter are or whether or not you want them to, or even if you're aware that they are, they will. And their effects will meet themselves out in a variety of ways, regardless of whether or not you are aware of that being the origin of what your issues are, they absolutely contribute to it 100%. And to ignore them is folly. To ignore them is to ignore a significant key to figuring out how best to help you when people are trying to help you catcher in the rye is a lot it's so much it was so anticlimactic like i don't understand why it's taught or why it was taught it's not really taught anymore uh and i completely agree with it being overrated like damn that kid's fucked up nah he's still fucked up at the end okay like what the why am i reading this great yeah awesome there there was no character development like the the character didn't go anywhere you just see more and more of how fucked up his life is and then it ends i would be i would be upset if i was forced to read this book and then oh yeah write a paper on it i'm like well this kid has fucking life's a bitch and then you die you're welcome because that's what the book says yeah, this kid is has undiagnosed ADD and bipolar 
ism and he's bisexual and that's fucking evident like <laughs> this kid yeah. this kid is tore up from the floor up why am i reading about his <laughs> why am i reading his journal yeah essentially why am i reading his uh, journal <laughs> no for real no you're not wrong and in fact your criticism actually i i swear i'm almost done but i just have a little bit of like you know like the reception of it and stuff after it was published and your criticism is one that not necessarily for the same reasons, but the the like core of what your criticism is, is actually one that lots of people hold about it. So J.D. Salinger has been, was very adamant that the novel was intended for adults. Um, it was not intended for young adults to read. It was an, it was an adult book reading about Holden Caulfield. Uh, however, because Holden Caulfield is 16 years old, it has often been put upon adolescents to read, and so it is now very commonly taught as a young adult novel, even though it really fucking isn't. Um, <laughs> it is not a young adult novel. Uh, if a young adult read this, you would have to be someone who matured very early uh, to kind of understand the nuances of what this story is about because otherwise it's it's just going to fall flat on an adolescent they're going to they'll definitely find things that they can relate to in Holden Caulfield that's not an issue because he is a very typical 16 year old and like his attitude about shit is very typical for his age so in that regard yeah absolutely young adults completely will be able to connect with that but they're yeah. not gonna understand the like actual kind of gravity of the novel and some of the more important things that the novel is trying to say about culture and about you know society at large that's just gonna go over young adults heads because they are not their brains are not developed enough yet to kind of understand that and they don't have enough experience with the world to see that Holden Holden's place in this conversation is so valid and so tragic well that's interesting that you would say that because a lot of a lot of YA novels do deal with a lot of really intense shit like this for sure that, yeah that kids handle just fine and the way that this is written because it's being written from a 16 year old's perspective makes it an easy read for young readers. So it's weird that you think that young readers wouldn't be yeah. able to grasp yeah. these things when like, okay, I read, I mean, when I was in high school, when I was a young reader, uh, yeah. Harry Potter was like the big thing and all the other like young reader giant stuff. colossal stuff hadn't really come out yet harry potter was like the big one right and i got all of the societal like i picked up on oh, yeah. all of those insane things and like a friend of mine's daughter she's 14 now she's 14 right yeah. now and she read the whole series last year when she was 13 and under and understood it we had full in-depth conversations about the ideas between or behind like the social interactions between the wizards and all the other creatures and the insanity that was Voldemort and how it relates to 
horrible people in throughout history and things you like know that what? actually so. um no you know what that's a valid point and actually you've changed my mind um <laughs> and i'm not no I, and, and i i feel like that sounds kind of like facetious like i'm making it as a joke for like the yeah. podcast but i'm really not actually um no you're right um and i recognize that and that actually has changed my mind actually on it I keep saying actually I'm so sorry that's okay um, I'm drunk so you know it happens well this is what you signed up for when you started listening to the podcast in the first place yeah um <laughs> so no you're right actually I am not giving adolescents enough credit and for that I apologize adolescents I um, think I think the way that it's taught would impact a lot of how kids react to this to this book and how they how they understand what's happening my thing is that I think is you found the nuance of why my initial reaction was like that you're right and it's not that the adolescents can't get it I'm sorry again anyone listening who is a young adult um it's not that the adolescents don't have the capability it's that the people who teach the literature to young adults, they have to be able to teach it in a competent way, in a way that focuses on the important aspects of the novel and doesn't get hung up on some of the less important things about the novel that are maybe easier to kind of focus on because they don't get in, they don't delve into deeper waters and they don't delve yeah. into kind of deeper discussions um yeah. but the they're the lesser important things about the book and when you strip those important aspects of the book away then you're left with a really superficial novel that you and I both agreed is overrated this is yeah. a novel about a kid who goes on a huge like fucking like Vegas night basically for he two goes, nights and he goes on a two night bender yeah, he yeah. goes on a two-night bender and he clearly has some fucking issues. Yeah. This is like, this is not this is not it's the hangover, but as a 16-year-old. Yeah, this I'm is saying? not <laughs> this is not earth-shattering, groundbreaking material. This right. and okay, I was never taught catcher in the rye. Uh I don't know that my school taught catcher in the rye when I was in school, but I know that it is taught all over the place. Um, and I think, okay, so going back to that Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Jennifer Aniston movie, it's called The Good Girl, and, ah, yeah, okay, um, I think I mentioned it at some point in my notes before we're done with my portion of this, I'm so sorry. (laughs) You're fine. So this, the movie follows Jennifer Aniston's character, she's just, like, in a meh marriage and kind of meh at her job and then she meets this young high school kid named oh uh, no named holden he mm-hmm. self-named himself holden after reading catcher does. in the rye and decided that holden was like the end all be all like this kid is fucking great yeah. and now i bring that up because i feel like a lot of english teachers have done a disservice to students in teaching yes. this book, idolizing Holden, making him out mm-hmm. 
to be some hero because this kid is just as fucked up fucked as up. his ra- as his rapist friend. Quite and it fucked needs, up. And it needs to be, you need to understand that from the start, not just yes. go through and like yes. fall in love with the character of Holden as the as his life is just getting progressively more fucked right. up. Like yes. Yeah. There are a lot of things that all kids can find like, oh, I have that same relationship with my siblings or with my family or whatever. Like there's, there are little parts of his life that everyone can relate to, but you cannot treat Holden like he's some hero. He did nothing good in this book. He literally went on a bender and just said, fuck all to everything. Like, right. Fuck off school. Fuck off parents. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not even going to pretend to know or to talk to you. Like I'm hiding the fact that I skipped school. I got on a train, went to a casino, got drunk, hired a hooker, got held up by a pimp. Like what the fuck even is my life? Yes, exactly. (laughs) No, uh, no, you make a, a hugely valid point that I actually, like, I'm pretty sure I wrote it in my notes later. So we'll see if I have to skip over that part of my notes because I'm going to say it right now instead. But like Holden Caulfield is very obviously a unique young adult, but he is not a unique young adult purely because he's some like, enlightened guru type of young adult who is just has just understood society before anyone else and is just beyond all of the payons in the world and he gets all of the awful things about the world when no one else does that is a fraction of who Holden Caulfield is It is a very valid part of him. And it's not necessarily a bad thing to recognize that Holden is an alternative type of kid, what you and I would call an alternative kid, you know, like, and every time I say alternative, I always think of um, Whip It, where uh, the scene where um, Elliot Page's uh, character is serving in the diner and or the the girl one of the like popular girls is like are you all alternative now and Elliot Page's character is like alternative to what <laughs> like every time I say that every time I say that I always think of that scene but essentially Holden Caulfield is kind of quint- a quintessential alternative young adult yeah you're right he is kind of what we would consider a hipster. He is kind of what we would consider those kids that don't, they they don't follow what the normal quote unquote or standard quote unquote uh, road is or narrative is for a, a young adult who is popular or who is admired by their peers. You know, Non-conformity non-conforming exactly that's perfect they're non-conforming and some kids a lot more kids than they think they are there are are non-conforming but they just don't know how many of them are out there because they don't talk to each other and so it is definitely valid to see that in Holden and have that be something that inspires you that is very valid that I'm not saying that that is 
a wrong read of the character by any means. Absolutely, if that is what you see from Holden, and that is something that you find solace in and you find kindred spirit in with him, I'm so happy for you because you're valid. It is okay to be a non-conforming young adult. It is okay, more than okay, to not go with the quote-unquote standard road as a young adult. And you are cool and you are someone who, you know, you probably do get some things about society more than adults do and adults don't give you enough credit. That is probably true. Um, yeah, that's okay to to understand that about Holden. I think, and I'll you know I'll reiterate this when I get into the notes in a second. I think my problem with the way that he's been taught, and I think you agree with how you were talking about this right now, is that that was the sole focus. That became the sole the sole like descriptor of who Holden Caulfield is absolutely Holden Caulfield is the the poster boy for the non-conforming quirky kid and that was who he was and there was nothing else to talk about when it comes to Holden Caulfield's character and that's absolutely untrue because he is that but he is more also more than that he is a fucked up he is a kid that has mental illness. Absolutely, he does. Yeah. He is a kid that is potentially queer. Uh, he is a kid that has dealt and has had experiences that many kids have not had. Uh, yeah. Thankfully, because those experiences are awful experiences. He's yeah. had experiences that you don't ever want a young adult to have. And yeah you don't ever want to look at someone like that and say like, oh, I wish that I had had the same experiences that Holden Caulfield had had so that I could be just like Holden Caulfield. Like, no, you don't. You really don't. And that also needs to be addressed. That side of his character needs to be addressed. You don't want to experience losing a sibling. You don't want to experience you know, seeing a friend commit suicide, you don't want to experience being a sexual assault survivor. I understand that unfortunately media really, really romanticizes some of these, they they make them character traits rather than what they actually are, which are external influences on a character. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, Okay. Catcher in the Rye has sold around 1 million copies each year since it has been published, which is insane. So it has been consistently listed as one of the best novels of the 20th century. It has also been one of the most contested slash banned books in America, bar none. In 1960, for instance, a teacher in Tulsa, Oklahoma, assigned the novel in class and was fired for that. Uh, later on, she was reinstated. In but why? Uh, well, for lots of reasons. We'll talk about them in a second. Um, between 1961 and 1982, so about 20 years or so, uh, it was the most censored book 
in high schools and libraries in the United States, the number one most censored book between 1961 and 1982. It was uh, briefly banned in uh, Issaquah, I think. Issaquah is how you say that, Issaquah, Washington. Uh, it was briefly banned in that city in Washington uh, in their high schools in 1978. Three members of the school board in that city claimed that the book was part of an quote unquote overall communist plot. <laughs> um, okay. uh, it didn't yeah, the ban didn't last, but uh, the offended board members were immediately recalled and, and then like removed in a like special election <laughs> to like- As they should uh, be. be. Like, yeah, everyone was like, what the fuck is your problem? And they were, they booted them out of the board basically after that. In 1981, it was both the most censored book and the second most taught book in public schools in the United States. Insane that those two dichotomies, the most censored and the second most taught book in public schools. The book was the 10th most frequent challenged book from 1990 to 1999. Uh, it was one of the 10 most challenged books of 2005. It was off the list after that for three years, but then it reappeared on the list um, again in 2009. Challenges to Catcher in the Rye are essentially there for the language. Uh, Holden often says fuck all the time and lots of other things, talks about sex and talks about religion and God. Uh, and Jesus a lot. And so a lot of people um, challenge the book on blasphemy charges. They talk about Ugh, the book separation of church and state. Fuck yeah. everybody. <laughs> there's, a, there's a really great part. In fact, if I can find it really quickly. No, I'm not even going to because it'll take me forever. And we're already, we've already been doing this forever. But there's this really great part where he like remembers going to like a Catholic ceremony where there's like big religious choruses singing about uh and it's like at Christmas or something and he remembers the the person that he was with going like oh it's so beautiful oh it's so religious and he just remembers thinking like did any of these people read the bible because I feel like the real Jesus would hate all of this everyone is decked out and like expensive gorgeous ass flashy robes and there's gold everywhere and shining things everywhere and it's all fancy ass I feel like Jesus would hate all of this and it's like a really wonderful moment they talk about the book undermining family values uh they talk about the moral uh codes that the book kind of throws out the window uh they say the book uh, is encouraging of young adult rebellion. It promotes drinking and smoking, and it also promotes lying and promiscuity. And it he wasn't also promiscuous though. Talks well, he wasn't, but lots of his friends were. And it also, in that regard, talks about sexual abuse. And all it's telling me makes it okay. Yeah, all, all you're telling me is that. People who grew up in the 50s 
people who are Holden's age and experienced the same shit that Holden was experiencing, his friends kind of being rapey and gay undertones and girls being fast or whatever, people who literally experienced this and this was their life are just like, oh no, we can't tell the kids how life really was. Then they'll know we're not, we're not all perfect and we're not- like fuck and you. they and Your they fail to understand know. that kids kids do that when they are teenagers all the time it doesn't matter what time you're in it wasn't it wasn't just the 1950s that teenageness yeah. was like this teen being a teenager is always like this yeah your kids the, already the know surroundings just change yeah unfortunately one really awful impact that the catcher in the rye has had on american society is that it has very negatively uh fatally influenced some people in the u.s to cause uh shootings so uh one infamous shooting was uh, Robert John Bardo's murder of Rebecca Schaefer uh, in Hollywood on July 18th, 1989. Rebecca Schaefer was a um, Hollywood actress and uh, Robert John Bardo was a, an obsessed fan and he was also obsessed with uh, The Catcher in the Rye. I don't understand where that comes from and how anyone on the outside looking in can attribute that like vengeful murderous side to the book catcher in the rye because holden doesn't do either of those things and never. oh yeah no absolutely not and is never like oh well she reject that girl rejected me good thing too because she deserved to be raped by my best friend like right and none of that caulfield is literally a self-described pacifist like he says it point blank in the book i am a pacifist i do not you know it just uh, doesn't make sense or believe in violence as being an answer for anything yeah it Uh, doesn't make sense that this book keeps getting attributed to just insane acts of violence and the reason that it does unfortunately is because lots of people who mistakenly take their what they took from the book and kind of use it as a scapegoat for their bad behaviors have unfortunately done really bad things in the u.s uh so uh robert john bardo was one of them another one was john hinckley jr uh who uh if no one (laughs) listening knows was the person who attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan in 1981. And Hinckley actually admitted that not only did he love The Catcher in the Rye, but he was a big admirer of Mark David Chapman's attempt to murder John Lennon. That leads us to the most infamous, unfortunately, shooting that was quote unquote influenced by The Catcher in the Rye. Uh, John Lennon, of the Beatles was fatally shot by one Mark David Chapman. He was arrested with a copy of the book on his person. He had purchased that book, the copy of that book that was on him that same day. And inside it, he had written to Holden Caulfield from Holden Caulfield. 
this is my statement. He had wanted to even change his name to Holden Caulfield. And uh, he read a passage from the novel to address the court during his sentencing hearing. Not a good look. And again, it doesn't back, be, exactly back to teachers. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> for sure. For sure, for sure, for sure. Uh, idolizing this sort of like um, this clearly mentally this, distressed child. Yes. Murderers murder people, and there is no one to blame for their murder except themselves because they decided to murder that person. The end of my response, anyway, to all of those allegations. Anyway, in 2009, <laughs> the year before uh, Salinger died, he actually sued to stop the U.S. from publishing a novel that was essentially fan fiction of Holden Caulfield. So this person, Frederick Colting, wrote essentially this fan fiction of Holden Caulfield as an old man. And then he was like, all right, I'm gonna publish this. It's my novel, I'm an author. And Salinger was like, uh, uh, no, you're not. That's my character. You didn't create that character. I created that character. <laughs> you can't like take my character and then like write your own story about him and pretend that you wrote him because you did not. <laughs> and uh, 50 shades of gray. A thousand percent, except unfortunately, uh, Colting was not as smart as James and he didn't change the names and rub off any of the serial numbers. Uh, and he was actually very upset about this. He thought that uh, it was perfectly fine for him to try and publish his uh, fan fiction. And he is quoted as saying, call me ignorant, but the last thing I thought possible in the US was that you banned books which was stupid because his novel is not an original novel. It is fan fiction. Uh, of a book that got banned all the fucking time. Yeah. In pop culture, obviously The Catcher in the Rye has had a, a huge significant impact. Billy Joel, We Didn't Start the Fire, mentions the novel. Green Day has a song called Who Wrote Holden Caulfield? It's from their album Kerplunk uh, from 1991. Uh, and Catcher in the Rye stuff has been mentioned in South Park. Uh, Bill Gates actually is on record saying that The Catcher in the Rye is one of his favorite books. What and the fuck? lastly, yeah. And lastly, uh, for some super, super crazy fun facts, this novel helped popularize the slang for saying screw up. I screw up somebody or I'm screwing up right now or I screwed this all up. And that is The Catcher in the Rain. What a shit show. <laughs> what a shit show, right? That kid's Insane. Life, that kid's life is a mess. Holy shit, I get to kick back now. Oh my God, I'm so ready for this. <laughs> okay, so mine will be incredibly short because there's not a lot to the movie that I watched. I watched a film from the Disney Channel. It was a one of the original DCOMs that came out in the year 2000. 2000 in all of my adult life, I don't think I have ever met anyone 
who watched this film. For some reason, I think that me and Sam were just like in our own little bubble. And we're the only people who ever watched this film ever. If you watched this film at some point in your life or you have fond memories or remember watching this film, please, please, please tweet at me. Let me know because we cannot be the only two people who watched this film. I am talking about the weird as fuck Disney Channel original movie, Stepsister from the Planet Weird. Oh my God, yes. Oh my God. I This is one of the movies that I recorded on VHS. There yep. is a VHS tape that exists somewhere uh, either uh, in my house or in one of my family members' house that has Stepsister from Planet Weird on it. Yep. Oh my God. Yep. Oh my God, I'm so excited. So clearly, uh, Sam and I watched this film a lot when we were kids. Um, yes. I don't. I don't know how many times I watched this in the year 2000, but I'm sure it was a lot. My friends growing or in college and stuff were huge, huge Disney fans. Everyone, all of my friends are super duper Disney fans. And we talk about DCOMs more often than any adult really should be talking about DCOMs. That's me and my (laughs) friends. Okay. So we talk about all the classics and the things that we watched, like uh, the color of friendship and Brink and all of these different things, you know, all the great ones, Johnny Tsunami and Xenon and all of that. But Uh, no one, when I bring up Stepsister from Planet Weird, everyone just like blacked out the month that this came out and never watched this movie. But Sam and I for sure watched it all the time. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm so excited. I don't remember anything about this movie, but I remember being obsessed with it and I remember loving it. So I'm super excited because I know how much I was obsessed with it. And I don't remember anything about it. So it will simultaneously be a new experience, but with my young child enthusiasm of our yes. loving it. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was the same way when I sat down and watched this. I was like, I remember watching this film a whole bunch as a kid, but I couldn't tell you what the fuck the point of this film was right. at all. Like right. I remember, I remember the dad a little bit and I remember the two girls and that's all I got. I remember the, the sister- <sighs> who was not from Planet Weird, she was kind of a Disney, not a Disney darling per se, because she didn't like go on to have like a huge career, but she was a huge Disney actress in that moment. Yeah, uh, in she- In the, the early 2000s, because she was in a bunch of stuff. I think she was also in um, the 13th year and she was so in she was like things. She was like the background character in a whole bunch of different films different Disney films at that same time but wasn't necessarily like the main person in any of them except for this one so she was in the 13th year she was in um stepsister from planet weird and and then after that it was just like I'm just like a background character for a bunch of tv shows so right okay so this movie is the story of Megan Larson, who is a 14-year-old girl living her life in what I assume is California. We don't really ever like 
they don't ever specify where she lives but she's fucking windsurfing and like where yeah. the fuck else are you I, windsurfing? yeah i was gonna say i remember there being ocean and beach action so yeah there's <laughs> there's ocean and beach and everyone at the at the beach is like clad like they're out of california beach like it's okay they're not up north where it's fucking cold. Like you can windsurf right. in Washington State, but it's fucking cold as shit because it's right. basically Canada. Be clothed appropriately, yeah. Yeah. So I'm gonna assume they're in LA. Anyways, uh Megan is telling she starts off telling the story she's writing um in her journal. And she's telling us about her family and the events that are happening in her life right now. So basically her mom and dad and her brother all go to the beach. They all go to the beach together to go hang out for the day. And her dad gets a phone call as they're like walking to the beach. He ends up on that phone call all day. They come back to the car after they've spent an entire day like playing in the water and the sand and stuff. And he's still hmm. fucking talking on his business call. Okay. And the mom has had enough and they get divorced. Yeah she's so i make yeah relatable i'd have been like bitch <laughs> oh, absolutely absolutely so so megan is setting the scene for where basically where we're at so her mom is relatively newly single they didn't get divorced too long ago and megan is struggling with the idea of her mom like dating again but is mm. telling us you know she's been on a couple of dates uh, like random people and Megan always finds a way not necessarily to sabotage because she's not trying too hard but she just like says off-putting things to these guys that are like waiting for the mom to come downstairs to go on their date I'm like oh yeah you know this and this and this and they're like yikes like mm. I'm out I'm, we're done we're Ouch. done at the end of this first diary entry we find out that the mom has met a man who she is starting, who seemingly makes her really happy. And his name is Cosmo Cola. That's and, a fucking name. I'm so yep. sorry. We need to pause on that name. Cosmo yep. Cola. Yep. Wow. Wow. Yep. Wow. So, she, so Megan is like, what the fuck, mom? Like he sounds, he sounds like an alien. Are you kidding me? Blah, blah, blah. Right. And she's like, whatever he makes me laugh and the mom goes on yeah. to tell you know about how they met which is she was windsurfing the mom was windsurfing and Cosmo runs into the water to try and save her because oh. he thinks he thinks that she will be injured by the wind because he is oh. afraid of he's afraid of the wind so he doesn't want her to get hurt so they hit it off That's and they fall in cute. love then the story shifts and it goes back to the beginning of the love story. And we get told through Ariel's eyes, who is Cosmo's daughter, we get told her side of the story and she is writing her journal in the air with her fingers. And it's going into this little like bulb thing on her desk. So something's fucking weird about her right we Already. don't know what it is she's fucking that weird. shit ain't normal writing in the air oh in when megan is telling her side of it she mentions or she is told that cosmo and his daughter are from the yukon her response is nobody lives in the yukon what the fuck so that's their excuse basically for just being weird as fuck when later when they all meet 
for anyone listening who lives in the Yukon, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. You're not an alien. No. I swear. I apologize profusely for the xenophobia of uh, 1980 to, to 2000 and now, basically. Yeah. And this includes 2000 and stuff. This is a planet yeah. weird. So Ariel is writing in her journal and we finally kind of understand what's going on with her and why Cosmo and her are so weird. So we find out that they are actually aliens in for real aliens from the planet Circulon. So on their planet, their dad was a freedom or her dad was a freedom fighter and the emperor Savad does not approve basically. So wait, her mo- I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Pause. Freedom fighter from what? I don't know, from the horrible I'm assuming fascist regime that Savad okay, has so they're happening on their like planet. Okay, so they're living like a fascist regime. So are there different species from Circulon? Not that we know of. Everybody on Circulon is a gaseous bubble. <laughs> I, I have so many questions, but you okay, know what? So, I'm just going to swallow them. Okay, so... <laughs> this her story Ariel's story starts out she is a bubble with a face who is like floating floating along with her boyfriend uh Fanuel who is also a bubble with a face and they're like all in love and then Cosmo and her mom come up and say we've got to get out of here and they fucking go on the run and they're being chased by Savad's I don't know, army. They're like in little bubble jet things with laser guns and they're shooting at them and they're trying to get away. They're, the mom dies, but Cosmo and Ariel escape and they end up like they go through some portal and they end up yeah. on earth. This so, is incredible. I'm it's sorry, fucking, you can keep going. I'm just <laughs> reveling in how insane this is. It is insane, which is probably why nobody remembers it. Sure. Uh, the more I'm listening, one, the more I remember, and two, the more I realize this is absolutely the reason that everyone blocked it out. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so she's telling us the her backstory, and then she goes on to tell to start to tell the rest of the story how she's trying to adjust to the planet how it doesn't make any sense how she's really unhappy in her humanly form her human body she wants to go back to being a gas and like just floating around or whatever on her planet that's and- real I, I feel like if i could be a huge ball of gas in the air i would definitely choose that versus having this body right now and I don't just do that <laughs> from superficial reasons, but like, that would be so free. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So she's, you know, building up Circulon and her past self, tell, you know, just upset at the world that she has to deal with this. And then she's telling the side of Cosmo and Catherine's love story from her point of view, like, 
this is stupid. Why are you falling in love? How can you forget mom? Like she didn't die that long ago and all these things. Then it switches back to being, so this movie keeps being told back and forth for a while from the viewpoints of the girls' journals. Um, Got it. It goes back to uh, Megan's journal and she tells the story of their first like family meeting where all the kids or all three of the kids get to meet each other and they you know the they're gonna meet Cosmo for the first time and Ariel's gonna meet three Megan Megan and Megan and Ariel and then Trevor the little boy there's a little boy that's right I'm sorry I totally forgot that this little boy existed it's okay remember it's okay (laughs) so they're gonna have a family dinner where they all get to meet each other like you do when you're a blended family like at some point they everyone's got to meet immediately Trevor and Cosmo form this incredible bond because Cosmo is very much like a child. He is, for lack of a better word, Arthur Weasley. Okay, nice. Good analogy. He is a grown man who is new to the planet and is just fascinated with everything. He has this childlike wonderment that the mo- this mom right. actually says this that is what made her fall in love with him and him and trevor the little boy hit it off immediately they're like you know shooting pretend finger guns at each other and wrestling okay. and doing all this dumb shit because that's that what little kids are drawn adorable. to it's very cute <laughs> but the teen girl uh megan is like the fuck is wrong with this guy like <laughs> He's supposed to be a grown man. This he's insane. Meg, uh, not Megan. Ariel is just weird as fuck. She's super afraid of the wind because on Circulon, the wind can hurt you because you're a fucking bubble, so it could pop you or whatever. Fair. So <laughs> she is weird, and Megan understands that she's weird from the get-go. There's nothing she can do about it, basically. Her mom and Cosmo are in this relationship they're going to deal they're going to keep being in this relationship they announce after a couple of more like we're going to get together and have dinner situations Cosmo and Kathy announce that they are engaged and they're going to get married and immediately the girls are like no And with the engagement announcement, they also announce, and you guys are going to the same school starting tomorrow, whatever. So, so Karen, the normal girl, or not Karen, Megan has to teach Ariel how to navigate high school, basically. So they roll up to high school and Ariel is by all means weird as fuck. So (laughs) she's like... I don't, it doesn't make any sense, honestly. Like this girl rolls up into high school and she is wearing like pink and red and purple from head to toe, except for her like her knee high rainbow socks. So she's got like knee high rainbow socks on, these bright pink shoes, this hot pink skirt that goes down to her knees that has like a weird pattern on it. She's got like a long sleeve pink shirt underneath a purple uh spaghetti strap tank top like the girl is whacked what? out and and if a kid 
Now, as someone who went to school in the 2000s, like I was only in middle school in the year 2000, but I was right on the, I was about to go to high school. If a kid showed up looking like that at fucking school, they would have been made fun of constantly until they figured it the fuck out. Yeah, for sure. I was still in elementary school in 2010 uh, and WTF. Yeah, Uh (laughs) but... But they roll up onto their school and she's weird, clearly. She doesn't understand human culture or anything or fashion. And she rolls up looking like this and all the kids are like, oh my God, she's so out of the box. She's so different. She's so interesting. She must be the coolest kid ever. And she instantly becomes one of the popular kids. And Ariel is just fucking confused. I'm so upset right now. Ariel's just fucking confused like these kids are vapid and shallow and I don't want to be a part of it which amen Mm -hmm. and Megan's upset because Ariel just basically came in and now rules the school even though she's garbage and this doesn't make any okay I'm sorry I will make no sense makes no sense I will hold these comments for the end okay no it makes no sense (laughs) so while they're kind of walking around school and like going through the the course of the first day megan decides i have an idea we're gonna make a we're gonna build we're gonna plot together and we're gonna break up our parents because you don't want to be here i don't want you to be here i don't want our parents to get married i don't want to be your sister and ariel's like yeah you're right i don't want to be here i don't want to be your sister i don't want any of this shit so let's fucking do it So they set this course, they have all these elaborate different things that they're going to plant in their parents' ears. Uh, Ariel is going to say something to Cosmo, like, Kathy really wants you to be more manly and more more this and more that. So he kind of like watches a bunch of like John Wayne movies and then starts acting acting like a douchebag. And Kathy's like, what the fuck? But okay, Megan tells Kathy, oh yeah, you know, Cosmo made some comment about how he really liked how, you know, you're just so fun and not very bright and blah, blah, blah. You know, not, he didn't say that word, but some word that means that basically. And the mom was like, the fuck? So the next time- So the next time that she sees him, she is like reading Shakespeare and like proving herself that she's proving to him that she's not just some dumb girl. Eventually, it comes to a head where the parents realize that the kids are behind this shit. The kids get in trouble. The girls get in trouble for this. For sure. They because slick. they should. They ain't slick <laughs> at, at all. And they do not succeed, basically. Uh, they get in trouble. They go back to writing in their journals. So Megan is writing about how upset she is about all the, you know, all everything that's happened. And Ariel writes in her journal or her diary thing or whatever and decides, okay, well, I'm going to contact my boyfriend because I don't want to be here. I want to be with him. So she sends a note to her boyfriend, a message to her boyfriend on the planet Circulon and is like, Hey, I really miss you. I need to see you. By the way, don't tell your dad, General Savad or Emperor Savad, where we are. Very clear. Very Very clear. Very obvious, right? (laughs) 
the next, I don't know, like a couple of days later is the wedding or I don't know how much imaginary time has gone by, but Cosmo and Kathy have figured out their relationship, have fixed all the weird problems that the girls started. And now it's like the big day is here. Fair. The day of the wedding, uh, Megan is dressed and ready and Ariel's nowhere to be found. So they, she goes up to the room to find Ariel and happens upon Ariel and Fanul, her boyfriend in human form and Fanul's dad, who's here to deal with Cosmo. Fanul's dad, Emperor Savad, goes and finds Cosmo and freezes him with his little freeze ray gun. And Megan and Ariel and Fanul and this boy named Cutter, who Megan has had a crush on this entire film, they get blow dryers and blow dry him Emperor Savad because he's afraid of the wind. He's a fucking bubble, right? So they blow dry him into oblivion, basically. He turns into this giant bubble. After he loses his human body, he turns into giant bubble Savad. And they're like, well, fuck, these tiny hair dryers aren't going to do shit. And then Trevor, the little kid, he's like seven. He rolls up with a fucking leaf blower and blows that dude to shit and then he explodes and then they go on with the wedding hooray they reverse cosmo from being ice then cosmo and kathy can get married and megan and ariel are happy now they're like you weren't so bad after all now we're gonna be sisters hooray everything works out happily ever after happens for kathy and cosmo then they show the reception throughout the lat like the last act of the film you get this feeling that cutter or very clearly and disgustingly cutter has feelings for ariel he's attracted to ariel's body and fanul has is attracted to megan's brunette body so of course the blonde boy and the blonde girl end up together and the brunette boy and the brunette girl end up together and then at the end Fanul has to leave to go back to the planet Circulon because now he's the emperor and he's going to make some changes in Circulon and fix things Um, but he he promises Megan he's going to come back and that's it the end everyone's happy (laughs) well she's 14 so she's probably never heard any of that before this is probably the first time she heard that shit but yeah uh, there is a point that I forgot to mention. Megan happens upon Ariel in her bubble form and completely loses it to the point where her, her mom sends her to see a psychiatrist like, you think she's a bubble. You're crazy. And the, the whole time, Megan's like, no, she was fucking I'm a sorry. bubble in the sink. I love you. I love you so much. And you're also sick. So I don't feel too bad for calling you out on this. How did you forget to mention this crucial moment in their characterizations? Because <laughs> it happens really quickly. Honestly, this, that That's moment in the. So crazy. Yeah, so they're like they're like at dinner one time 
like one of one of the middle dinners where they're like getting to know each other as a family and Ariel like freaks out and decides she needs a drink of water or needs some water and she runs to the fucking bathroom like usually she runs to the bathroom and locks the door or whatever and then she comes out and she every time she comes out of the bathroom she's soaking wet and everyone's right. just like what the fuck and she's like oh you know I slipped in the sink fucking weird but everyone kind of just brushes it everyone brushes it off because she's from the Yukon and she has no she doesn't really understand you know how to use the language right or you know whatever but one time in the middle of this film Megan forgets like decides not to knock and just to walk into the bathroom while Ariel's in there like getting some water or whatever and she Ariel is literally a bubble in the sink it's fucking weird and the whole time her little brother Trevor is obsessed with men in black and he keeps talking about men in black and asking whether Cosmo is a good alien or a bad alien and he keeps telling people like telling random people oh you're an alien you're an alien you're an alien so from the childlike wonderment of this little kid he's just like oh you're an alien you're an alien and he keeps saying that to Ariel and Cosmo just joking because he's in his own mind he's playing men in black but in real life they actually were aliens they are not subtle that's the that's the end (laughs) do you remember this movie at all I'm so upset for a variety of reasons (laughs) that I almost don't know which one to address first (laughs) I remember for sure the high school moment of Ariel coming and suddenly being the popular kid because it won gazillion percent made no sense yeah I remember that moment um and I remember it very explicitly because of the nature of who I was as a uh middle schooler because this was what month was it in 2000 June okay so it was June in 2000 so this was actually summer right before I went to middle school Mm -hmm. and I definitely was that kid that went to school dressed exactly like Ariel was dressed and I wasn't (laughs) doing it intentionally I was not doing it because I wanted to be edgy and I was not doing it because I wanted to be like oh, I know what the popular kids wear, but I'm going to be alternative and I'm going to like try to like be cooler than them. Yeah. And I know that people don't believe that these type of kids actually exist, but I really was one of those kids that actually existed that I had no fashion sense. I legitimately believed when I would put clothes on, I'd be like, okay, that's cool, whatever. And I would go out because I didn't see anything wrong with it. And I would look exactly like Ariel. (laughs) I'm not going to get into it because it's not necessary. But like, I was absolutely not the popular girl. 
<laughs> during those years where I did that, it was one gazillion percent not popular to dress like that. And I actually remember watching this video and I simul I remember simultaneously feeling one validated because Ariel became popular, but also two heartbroken because she became popular dressing like that, but I was not popular dressing like that. Yeah. Which meant something was clearly wrong with me. That was a really big component of my personality during those years that followed me even into high school almost into junior year I want to say probably junior year is probably when I finally kind of like unambiguously and unapologetically kind of went you know what I'm going to dress the way I fucking want to dress and I really don't give a shit what anyone else thinks of how I dress and I'm I'm cool with it yeah Uh, and then I ended up getting into a relationship that was uh you know emotionally manipulative and that changed a bunch of stuff and we don't need to get into it but like that period of not knowing it's hard to explain it's really hard to explain and I hope I'm not doing a disservice to any kids that potentially felt the same way or do feel the same way if you are this age it was hard for me to understand the line between what was so strange that it would be cool versus what was too strange that it is absolutely quote unquote not cool all of those types of like standards in general are super dumb anyway and it's easy to say that as an adult looking back that like none of that matters but when you are a kid in that situation it does matter and it is a huge thing that matters and I actually was and I can remember this now especially after you like telling about the movie I remember being upset you know okay I'm watching this I'm watching this movie and Ariel becomes popular why aren't I popular yeah. Why why is it when I dress like that I get made fun of rather yeah. than heralded as someone new and avant-garde and clearly super cool. Yeah. And I was 10, so I didn't have the answer to that question, but I look back now and I think to myself there was so much like misguided attempts trying to almost fetishize like the the awkward girl in that day and age because this was also the time of things like she's all that and Mm -hmm. uh you know like all of those stories that did the makeover of the nerdy girl into a quote-unquote hot girl and oh, yeah. part of that was mean actually, girls and clueless yeah. and all of them and part of that was absolutely as people rightfully judge it talking about how oh you're not good enough until you abide by the standards so doing the makeover 
but part of that was also pseudo glamorizing the nerdy girl and glamorizing like oh if you find a nerdy girl all you have to do is make her over and then she'll be gorgeous and that was not going to be the case for a lot of girls because not everyone looks like Brittany Murphy not everyone looks like oh fuck whatever her name is and she's all that Rachel Lee Uh, Cook yes thank you Rachel Lee Cook not everyone looks like that but they are still also nerds and dressing like that and then watching movies where or stories in general where you had that nerdy kid that didn't have fashion sense that was obviously quote-unquote dorky and not attractive And then going like, oh, all you have to do is give them a makeover. All you have to do is put on these types of clothes and put some and slap some makeup on them or whatever. And then they're obviously beautiful. All of the kids that didn't look like a Rachel Lee Cook or a Brittany Murphy or a whoever were left in the dust in that era because Mm -hmm. even if you put those clothes on and put the makeup on, they still didn't have the face that everyone would look at and say like oh that's a beautiful face because it's symmetrical and it's this and it's that that I just feel like the focus on how to address that type of issue for teenage girls was so misguided and I don't think that it was malevolent. Like, I obviously don't think that there were misers sitting around in Disney going like, let's fuck up teenage girls even more by, you know, (laughs) making everything super fucking complicated for them. Yeah. I, that's obviously not what happened, but that is what ended up happening. I feel like in this like era of trying to glamorize the like quirky girl into being oh the quirky girls are just as hot as long as you slap this stuff on them and then you'll you know reveal the true hot girl within it's like no like girls look the way they look and they're hot whether or not they look like that when they're dressed nerdy or whether they have a bunch of makeup on and are dressed in super popular clothes like the way they look is the way they look all of that sort of focus on the superficial aspects of things was so misguided I don't know it was really weird me sitting here listening to you recount that and it's funny because you guys were just listening whoever's listening to this how excited I was when she started like talking about it and I actually didn't expect to feel as conflicted as I do right now like after listening to like the full movie of it yeah because when she's talked about that that did bother me it did bother me so your feelings towards how the popular kids perceive Ariel in her absurd clothing are similar to what Megan feels in that moment as well Megan is not she says she was a popular girl once for like a minute when she lied and said that she was related to jewel 
but she is no longer popular. She's just like a random girl in the school. Hold on, Hold on. I'm sorry. Jewel, like the singer? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's this amazing. Is, this I'm is, so excited about that. This is intense, like 2000 right now. So she was a popular girl <laughs> once, but isn't a popular girl like normally. And she's just a normal kid. So Megan is dressed like every other normal girl was in 2000s with like, you know, her billamong shorts and her like whatever garbage tank top. Aeropostale t-shirt or whatever. Yeah. That was a little, that was a little later, a little bit later, (laughs) but yes. Uh, No, we're talking like Roxy. It's all Roxy and billabong. Like, there you go, Roxy. She shopped this girl, Megan shops exclusively at Billabong. Okay. Yes. <laughs> or exclusively, no, sorry, exclusively at PacSun. That's what I meant to say. There we go. PacSun. Oh Pac-Sun. my God. Yeah, there's there's a an ancient memory for all of you listeners out there. So Megan feels the same way that you do about her about Ariel showing up and everyone just idolizing her over her ridiculous clothes. She's like, the fuck you guys, if I came to school wearing that, you would all call me a fucking spaz. Exactly. But this girl who is different, I I guess pretty. It's not like, it's not a face that you've ever seen before. Yeah. She's like, I, she's pretty, but she's wearing this absurd clothes. You're like, oh my God, these clothes are the fucking fashion. This is the peak of fashion. So much so to a point that later in the movie, while they're going to school and plotting this whole, like, we're going to break up our parents thing. The popular girls roll up to school wearing all different shades of pink, tons of layers with shirts that say, Ariel says something like, I'm protecting my... Uh, my aura or something like that some just absurd saying like as to why she wears all the layers and all the popular girls like make a tank top and they're fucking wearing that slogan on a tank top on top of several other layers of just absurd pink clothes with Mm -hmm. knee-high socks and a bunch of like their fashion sense has completely changed to whatever Ariel was wearing and Ariel doesn't get it because Ariel's like, no, you guys are vapid as fuck. Like, yeah, stupid. And Megan doesn't get it because Ariel just showed up. Like, she's right. wearing absurd things. You guys are dumb. Yes. But yeah, the popular girls in this movie are weird as fuck because that is not at all how popular girls would have been circa the year 2000. Right. And that bothers me. That super bothers me because, like, this was in 2000. How are you not portraying what the actual culture of teenageness is to the actual demographic that you're trying to, you know, sling this movie out to? And I guess to me, it just speaks to very obviously how before DCOMs started, no one really understood this like preteen demographic because that just would have never happened in real life. Yeah, absolutely no way would a new girl have come up dressed like that in 2000 and everyone would have been like oh shit she's so cool 
no, that that literally wouldn't happen. And I know because I lived in that moment as yeah. that demographic and saw kids doing exactly that. And they were not the cool kids. They were the kids that unfortunately got bullied as fuck. And yeah. absolutely it was uncalled for and it wasn't right. And I'm not saying that it was. I'm absolutely not saying that it was. You know, like it was an adult's idea of what is cool for preteens rather yeah. than what is actually cool for preteens. Yeah. Yeah. So this movie is absurd. Uh, it's exactly as absurd as I s- described it. Like the girl is literally a bubble. The CGI is just horrific because it was 2000s and it was a made for TV movie. It's a fucking mess. How much? Okay, so I didn't want to say this while it was happening, but I'm going to say it now. And you know what? I'm not going to even apologize for it. If anyone thinks I should apologize for it, you can go fuck yourself. And that's all I have to say about it. (laughs) But how much was the alien floating fucking gas bubble a metaphor for like race? for like mixed families you know what i'm saying in 2000 yeah yeah because looking back at this now and all of the shit that you're talking about and them being freedom fighters yeah okay so what you're saying is this was supposed to be a color of friendship movie except you wanted to make it sci-fi so you made them gas bubbles yeah the fact that different like races for instance would be so removed from quote unquote normal culture that it would be so obvious and so outlandish as to be able to equate it with being alien like gag me with a fucking spoon the yukon thing kill me twice in the Yukon being the excuse that apparently was supposed to be like the super understandable descriptor of why these humans just act so freaking strange. Yikes. He Cosmo says he's from the Yukon. I don't know. It's far enough away that it's that of course their customs would be different or whatever. I don't know. Fucking, I don't know. I don't know how they justified it or why. It's stupid. This movie... Right, but that's what I'm saying. Xenophobia. Xenophobia is how they justified it. And that's what I'm saying. Like, it wasn't intended. The actual aliens, quote-unquote, are played by super white people, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So they're talking about super white people being indigenous to the Yukon. And that's where they grew up. And that's why they don't understand real human social interactions and yikes that just is rough to swallow you know yeah anyway that is where i'm just gonna stop because i feel like (laughs) anything anything i anything i keep going on is just going to be a reiteration of it (laughs) and i give you why the reason this is exactly why i reacted the way i did when you guys showed me lone star state of mind yeah oh yeah oh yeah for sure for sure for sure uh yeah you guys (laughs) so for people listening hold on sorry you're gonna get like a a, like 
strange like uh, special guest star <laughs> interaction here. So there's a movie called Lone Star State of Mind uh, that is infamous in our family uh, because lots of people love it and think it's hilarious. Uh, and I am one of those people. I could probably quote that movie backwards and forwards. I know like every statement of it, but it is a dated movie. It is a movie that is set in Texas and it is not a, it is not like Austin, Texas. It is not a, you know, metropolis Texas that is, Texas is more blue than red today. You know, government is just waiting to catch up in that regard. But like this was back in the day and it was very much a stereotypical view of you know conservative texans being very problematic very small town uh sort of views on life and society it's a great movie in my opinion comedy wise not because of those problematic aspects that are incorporated into the comedy, but because of other things that sort of like contribute to the comedic aspects of it. The entire movie is a comedy, but there are great moments in it that are funny, that are not funny because they are like stereotypes or not funny because they are racist or not funny because they are ableist which was like a huge thing when <laughs> so when katie and i have we even talked about who we are on this podcast i think we have before maybe maybe we're not. cousins yeah we're cousins okay we're cousins but we're we're cousins are more sisters than cousins because like yeah. there was even a time where we like technically lived with each other and mm -hmm. we're very close in age. We're actually closer than age than my siblings and her siblings are. Yeah. Uh, so like we're very close, but clearly one of those things where <laughs> clearly you're welcome in the, um, the world. But we had like a situation recently where um, we were all together, like me and her and like my father and my stepmom, and we were like together for a while, like a week or something. And one of the things that happened one night, we were like, oh, what are we going to do? And we mentioned, me and my father mentioned Lone Star State of Mind, and it came to, <laughs> she's making a face, and it came to and it came to uh, our knowledge that Katie had never seen it. So we were like, oh shit, she's never seen it. And we were like super excited to show her. But to be fair, I actually did know when we started watching it that you would probably not find it as funny as everyone else did. Well, yeah, because I'm the 20 years removed from the humor. Yes. The, and the reason I knew that was because when I first watched it, I was, it was at like, like right after it came out, like 2005 mm -hmm. or 2006 or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it was very, very close to when it came out. So that was a culture where unfortunately we were a lot more abled. We were using the R slur. When we were living in that uh, time, 
it was very common to use that, at least where we live, um, as a euphemism for stupid. Just like it was a euphemism to use gay as stupid, and that was also awful. Yeah. Um, while we were understanding back then that we needed to stop using gay, we didn't understand that we also needed to stop using R, the R slur. There were some other sort of kind of like caricature aspects. There were a lot of like problematic aspects to the the movie. Um, And if you've never seen it, I do highly encourage you to watch it because in my opinion, it's a great story, but you should know that it is a dated story. There is some aspects of the humor that you just will not get or you might potentially even be offended by you know we were privileged we were white and we were privileged and it took us a long time many of us in our family to understand that privilege i'd like to specify Um, that my half of the family has always been hippies and very liberal (laughs) (laughs) but anyways (laughs) so we watched this movie uh when we were together and sam and uh, my uncle and aunt were both, uh, they're all laughing, uh, finding it very hysterical. And I can see some of the humor. Like I got, like, I understand it, uh, but it just wasn't funny. Like a lot of, to me, because I hadn't seen it in 2000 when it came out, it just wasn't funny anymore. Like the things it that they were resonate saying. resonate for you the way it resonates no, for us. Yeah, the the comedy had lost its funniness. Okay, like I can go back and I can watch Monty Python from 60 years ago and laugh my ass off because a man running behind another man banging coconuts together pretending it's a fucking horse will never not be funny. Right. But, But like a joke. Great point. But an offhanded joke about someone's sexuality being the reason that they're you know, they do this or, you know, someone not being able to stand right being the reason that this other thing is funny. Like it just has, it's lost its effect because things that were funny in 2000, a lot of those kind of jokes are not not funny funny anymore. anymore. So me watching it with 2020 eyes was just like, okay, this is, this is okay. (laughs) Like this, this movie was all right. And the rest of my family was like, you didn't think that was funny? What's wrong with you? And I'm like, well, no. <laughs> oh, God. Like, I, like, I get it. I understand where the humor is. And I understand why right. you guys think it's funny because you watched it 20 years ago. And, you know, you get it. Just like I watched Stepsister from Planet Weird 20 years ago. And all of these right. things were funny. And I wasn't breaking it down. Like, oh, well, this is clearly a metaphor for race. And clearly a metaphor... Yeah that mixed families have all these problems and all these different things. Like I wasn't thinking about any of that because I was 12. No, Like I didn't give a fuck, but watching it now, all of these other things have become apparent things that we care about now in 2020 that we clearly did not care about in the year 2000. Yes. And I think that is actually a problem that like, there's a whole pushback culture of like, everyone is just making children's stories much more complicated than they're supposed to be they're just supposed to be fun and they're just supposed to be surface level uh good is good and bad is bad and all that jazz 
it's not one or the other. That is the thing that we all have to accept. It is not just a either this story is good or this story is bad. So that was that got <laughs> that got real fucking deep and it intense. Did. It's about, super in. about stepsister from Planet Weird. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, uh, seven word synopsis. Oh shit! I forgot. Oh fuck! Oh my god! So my seven words for Catcher in the Rye: Holden needs medication and a therapist asap. <laughs> nice amazing that's good that, that kid was tore up like tore up from that, the floor up yeah get that kid a doctor because <laughs> he needs some help and then my seven words for stepsister from planet weird frenemies attempt parental breakup become sister bffs nice that actually is like wow that was like a very clean <laughs> description of it took out the alien aspect completely but that is a major part of this film it is for sure for sure they're from there a different planet people everywhere yes they're bubbles in the wind exactly katie was definitely sitting there while i was like ranting my ass off going like anyway i can stop listening to sam i'm going to start making my seven words Oh, uh, okay. 16 is the worst age to live. <laughs> Ooh, I'm going to give you a hard disagree there. Damn. Hold on. Okay. Hold on. Thir- okay. 13. 13 is way more brutal than 13 16. is hard. 13 Jun- is hard for the, sure. The, the junior high years are way way worse than anything i personally experienced in high school okay 16 is an awful age to live there you go there you go it's rough it's rough but it's not definitely not the worst definitely not the worst mental health is important so seek help yeah there you go that's a good one word synopsis (laughs) i like that Uh, yeah uh for stepsister from planet weird let's see um non-traditional families can be happy valid families yeah very nice words there you go very nice Uh, (laughs) the trope Uh, the trope of mixed families uh was really really started to come to a head in the early 2000s yes and when we were when we were growing up I remember never seeing mixed families because divorce at that point when I in like the 90s divorce it was, was still, still a like huge a huge taboo yeah it was still taboo but it definitely like the mid 90s like it became less and less and less taboo were I guess yeah. over the course of like the 80s and 90s it became less and less and less taboo to the point where yeah. in the early 2000s there needed to be there was a lot of media that focused on you know the the single parent oh, who finds hey. finds love with another single parent who also has kids and like you know and then they blend together like 
there's tons and tons and tons of shows and movies that came out all around that same time that were trying to normalize the idea of a blended family and stepsister from planet weird was just like one of those pieces of art that was like all right but then we're gonna throw in some uh sci-fi shit into it like <laughs> like they're bubbles we gotta change they're it bubbles. up a bit <laughs> they're bubbles they're from the yukon also from the ocean also yeah. they can't handle wind also and they they're really all like so white they You're really welcome. like root beer because <laughs> it's gassy Okay, so we have gone on many, many tirades <laughs> on literature and movies and Life. social psychology. Social psychology, yes. Yes. <laughs> but, anyways, <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in to Real Lit. We are finally done with this episode. I promise we're not going to keep you for very much longer. No, uh, <laughs> for sure, for sure. We are done. If you have some shit to say about Catcher in the Rye or uh, stepsister from planet weird you can tweet us at allentown pod you can email us at allentown presents at gmail.com or you can find us on facebook at allentown presents thank you so much susan dorda for making our beautiful artwork we love you so much you can find her work at www.susandorta.com s-u-s-a-n-d-o-r-t-a.com and as always it's been real and it's been 